this song asks nine questions. The answers to these questions could determine the fate of all of us in this next generation. Defense industry has become a major player in the domestic homeland security market, estimated to be worth over $20 billion in goods and services. Flashbangs, tear gas, rubber bullets, helicopters, armored vehicles. Historically, going back to the 1960s and 70s, police had shields and, and riot truncheons and tear gas, but they didn't tend to drive armored vehicles down city streets. The militarization of police is a trend that's grown for decades. It first came into the limelight during the Ferguson protests in 2014. We had this outsized, um, I would characterize it as a hyper-exaggerated response on the part of the police who looked like soldiers. In America, every 40 hours, a black person is killed by police. And every one out of 1,000 black people can expect 
to die due to police violence. These are statistics that should unnerve us all. Did you know they had this kind of firepower? No, not at all. With military equipment and training on full display across the country, many are questioning its implications. How exactly is local law enforcement acquiring military equipment? And does the gear help keep communities safe? Since 2005, the defense industry has spent over $100 million in lobbying efforts annually, partially to secure their interest in the domestic homeland security market worth over $20 billion in goods and services. Their contributions play a major role in maintaining a steady flow of militarized equipment to local law enforcement. Certainly vendors, people who, companies that manufacture the technology that the police are purchasing, um, are, are profiting from this. Um, the police, obviously, they're not in the business of, of, uh, of profiting from, uh, from private acquisitions. We've seen extensive lobbying from defense industries who produce educational videos for police, who, who are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to directly lobby Congress for defense spending, but also for these police programs. The police also have their own lobbying organizations that work towards securing budgets and equipment for local law enforcement. The National Fraternal Order of Police is one of them and has lobbied in favor of federal grants that are responsible for the militarization of police. It's really a variety of homeland security grants administered by the cops office, the, home, the Department of Homeland Security, etc., that have allowed departments to directly purchase military-grade equipment. And this has been essential to stimulating a domestic law enforcement market for military contractors. In some cases, the folks who provide the equipment actually directly assist police departments in making these grants. There's even a website that is sponsored by these defense contractors and other providers of police equipment to aid departments in the production of these grant proposals. This whole industry grew significantly during the War on Drugs campaign in the 1970s. Congress passed a law that focused on incorporating cooperation between the military and the local law enforcement, particularly related to countering uh, drug crimes and the war on drug, right? That was sort of the first connection between the military and domestic law enforcement. In 1989, Congress passed the National Defense Authorization Act temporarily allowing the Department of Defense to transfer excess military equipment to federal and state agencies. The program continued until the 1997 National Defense Authorization Act expanded it to include local law enforcement and made it permanent under a new name, the 1033 program. That began a massive transfer of military equipment to local police departments free of charge, as long as they paid for shipping and maintenance. The 1033 program um, was the congressional authorization that allowed police departments to basically go online. Um, there were catalogs of, of weapons and vehicles and aircraft and watercraft and any kind of military, surplus military equipment um, was available for the asking, and it was at no cost to law enforcement agencies. Departments may purchase shotguns that are placed in police vehicles as a routine matter. And some departments are purchasing a variety of less lethal weaponry with their own resources. But when we see sniper equipment, armored vehicles, large amounts of, of body armor, this is often uh, the result of federal spending. 
Since its inception, over 11,500 domestic law enforcement agencies have taken part in the 1033 program, receiving more than $7.4 billion in military equipment. What you end up seeing is, as a result of the 1033 program, local law enforcement continue to ramp up what we call special uh, task force, like SWAT teams, gang task force, drug task force, right? That all utilize this excess military material. In July 2014, Congressman Alan Grayson proposed a legislation to limit the transfer of certain weapons through the 1033 program. The amendment was met with immense opposition, failing on a bipartisan vote of 62 to 355. The people who voted not to change the 1033 program received 70% more money in campaign contributions from the defense sector than those who wanted restrictions. You know, one of the really troubling developments about the involvement of the federal government in the direct subsidy of purchases of militarized equipment is that this is really about creating a new market for defense contractors rather than really putting questions of public safety first. Besides providing free military equipment, the federal government also allows the police to purchase new equipment using their own funds under the 1122 program. It also gives local police departments the same discounts enjoyed by the federal government. We've seen instances across the country where uh, local governing bodies like uh, boards of selectmen and mayors and city councilors are often unaware that tax dollars have been expended to acquire these kinds of, of military weapons and military vehicles. What makes both 1033 and 1122 programs so powerful is the lack of clear oversight and accountability. The 1122 program, for instance, is not a grant or transfer program, and thus is not required to be monitored by the federal government. Meanwhile, the 1033 program has put lethal weapons in the hands of officers who have no justifiable need for such equipment. We've seen instances reported of, of some small towns, even some college and university police departments that were acquiring uh, military-grade weapons without any demonstrable um, need for, um, for the use of these or the acquisition of these weapons. After the events in Ferguson, the Obama administration sought to tighten the 1033 program with additional requirements and restrictions. After months of confrontations on America's streets, President Obama today banned the federal government from giving some types of military equipment to local police. You know, we've seen how militarized gear can sometimes give people a feeling like there's an occupying force as opposed to a force that's part of the community that's protecting them and serving them. And this led to calls in Congress to eliminate 1033 and eventually uh, measure an executive order by the Obama administration to place some limits on the type of equipment that could be used. Things like bayonets and turreted armor vehicles. The Obama administration also required police agencies to justify purchases of equipment considered potentially lethal. President Trump, however, rescinded all of those measures within two years in office. Obama administration made some efforts to increase accountability and auditing of this, but even then, the restrictions and oversight were quite limited. Under the Trump administration, there's even less evidence of any oversight, any sense that we know how this equipment is being used or whether or not officers are being properly trained in how to use it. In some cases, equipment transferred through these programs has simply vanished due to a lack of oversight and poor bookkeeping. 
there have been a number of situations where there have been audits of local police departments to try to figure out what they've done with this equipment, and these departments have been unable to provide adequate records. We don't know if this is a local sheriff taking home camping supplies or if this is about, you know, uh, stuff that's really gone missing, has been resold, or has just simply been lost. Oftentimes, the militarization of the police force might be what's distracting them from their original purpose, protecting our communities. There's no direct correlation between having military equipment from the 1033 program and seeing a reduction in crime or an increase in officer safety. When you increase the military equipment to police departments, you often increase the likelihood of violence within communities from police. The research I've overwhelmingly done shows that police officers are trained for tactics and worst case scenarios. However, their interactions on a regular basis are not worst case scenario. They are not dealing oftentimes with school shootings or mass shootings. They deal with those, but instead primarily what they're doing is having a conversation with someone. And if they're only spending eight hours on de-escalation and nearly 60 hours firing a gun and then another large chunk of time driving a vehicle, well, when they get in a situation, this is why they pull guns when people don't think those guns should be pulled because that's what they have been trained to do. When they bring this kind of this military hardware and this kind of potential for the use of force and violence to a protest, that's something that's not going to produce the desired outcome. It's going to make people angry. It's going to make them outraged. It's going to frighten them. It's going to make them feel that the police are not there to ensure that they are safely able to engage in the activities that they are engaging in that are protected by the Constitution. interjecting this segment here, which I didn't talk about in the introduction or anything like that, because there's a few things I want to cover before I get this huge file over to Archie. Um, this week, the U.S. came clean, and they're saying things like, well, we think the virus came from a lab. No kidding. If I were to look at a lab in this country with suspicion, it would be Fort Detrick. Um, that was involved in a big deal between the Wuhan. They were fighting back and forth and saying, hey, the Fort Detrick people were over here dancing around during the Wuhan military games. Go look at them for this lab leak. So, yeah, they were probably telling us the truth right then, right? And another thought that I had after the other show where I was talking about smallpox, right, and they were confused about horses or cows, here's what I think they've been doing. And keep in mind, this is just my opinion. It seems odd that all of these diseases seem to originate with animals, right? Monkeys, monkeypox, horses, cows. Well, here's what I think, and of course I have no way to prove this because I wasn't there, but no, neither were you. But think about this. I think when they were developing the smallpox thing, well, they were developing the disease. So how were they developing the smallpox disease? Well, because they were figuring out which um, things in the blood or whatever that animals have that we don't have. 
So in other words, if they inject us with something that came from, oh, I don't know, a horse or a monkey or something, it would trigger something in us, right? Um, yeah, so that's so I think they've been using animals to contaminate us with all these diseases. See, they have to give us the disease to come up with a cure, right? So I'm hoping you've caught that basic part here, right? This has all been about eugenics. Uh, another thing in the news that was kind of interesting, Peter Schiff, Mr. Controlled Opposition. That is one concept that people have a very difficult time with. I am so tired of people saying, well, but Peter Schiff is one of the good ones. No, he's not. He's on the screen. He's on the team. Come from a transgender family. He is not on our side. Stop thinking that way. Well, he just had his bank closed. Evidently, he had a bank in the uh, in Puerto Rico and because of irregularities. See, this is how it works. They have their attorneys, and the attorneys go in and set up the, um, well, the not so legal deals, but they set it up to engineer it, and then they have the other attorneys which fight against it. So it's just one big thing. But anyway, so how they're playing this thing is because supposedly Peter Schiff was anti-crypto. How's that going, kids? Crypto crashing big time, right? Um, nobody caught on. Crypto Jews. Anyway, so yeah, so um, they say that his bank was closed, and that strengthens Bitcoin case for financial freedom. <laughs> okay, now here's some words that I want you to think about. This is what they're saying about the um, climate change, right? And how they're positioning this whole thing is about climate change, right? Um, the climate is a disaster. The reason that all of this lack of food going on in the world is because of climate change. Well, let me read you this sentence so you can start to look for their wording. It says, Italy has declared a state of emergency because of drought. There is no doubt that climate change is having an effect, the Prime Minister said. Well, I would look no further than HARP. Matter of fact, I followed up on a few things um, this last week or so. I recorded the show about HARP around the time that Texas was in trouble, and you can look for it. All you have to do is look for HARP. It's still over on YouTube. Um, anyway, so I recorded that show about HARP, and um, so this week I wanted to humor myself to see if the grid that caused so much harm was fixed, because the deal in Texas, just to remind you, was they got hit with unusual weather. and. The unusual weather caused people to have tremendous, I mean, utility bills in the thousands, okay? So I was kind of curious to see if that grid had gotten dealt with, right? Well, surprise, surprise. Anyway, so, yeah, it hasn't been fixed. So good luck in Texas when it gets really hot this summer. Anyway, so I'm in Nebraska, farm country, right? Last year, we had a few days above 90 degrees. Normally, we have oh, decent weather here, right? We had a few days above that high. This summer has been the hottest in all the years that I have lived here. We're, we're running 90 and 95 degrees. Not good for crops, right? Um, and what they're doing is uh, lots of things are coming out of this that I want to catch you up with. Um, Texas is running out of electricity. Um, why is it running out of electricity? Well, because um, of the grid they have there. Go look at it for yourself. Um, one thing I learned during that time when Texas was having trouble 
was that people had commented that they had had um, generators that were solar. And when that hit, they weren't able to operate those solar generators because of no sun. There's this deal with these people of the sun, which I'm not going to get into today, but they will be blocking the sun. They have a lot of reasons to want to keep us out of the sun because, you know, lack of sunlight creates depression and stuff. So, anyways. Um, so, lots will blow up. Oh, yeah, okay. So, here's the deal. So, I was checking on Texas. Texas didn't fix the grid, so that's still an issue, right? Now, I've been talking briefly about how I think these states will start fighting between states over these grid problems, right? And I'm going to post um, a couple of links over at the website. One place you want to for sure look, I mean for sure, there's a couple of things going on in this country that are of pretty big concern. Um, one is what's going on out at Lake Mead. Lake Mead is the largest um, dam operation in this country. Well, I give Lake Mead about two months before it's done, okay? And I'm not being funny and I'm not joking around. Um, they're meeting next month, by the way, to figure out what to do with Lake Mead and see cause and effect, right? Now that Lake Mead is almost out of water, um, I'll tell you a little bit about it. There's about, I don't know, 50 or so boats still in the marina there. Those boats will never leave Lake Mead because the water is that low right now, okay? The Park Service has been spending a million or two, two million bucks every really often to keep moving those boats because the water is sinking that fast, okay? And Lake Mead is a pretty big deal, like a really huge deal. So let me get back to, oh, a place you want to look for, there's a guy on YouTube who's actually doing a great job on the ground. His name is Joey, okay? And his channel you want to look for is Vegas is the first word, V-E-G-A-S, and the next word is D as in Diane, Tech, T-E-C-H. Vegas, one word, D-Tech, one word. And he just did a report a couple of days ago on the ground there as far as what's going on in those marinas. And, uh, well, you know, I give it two months, that's my bet. Two months, two months top end, okay? So anyway, so, and I'm in Nebraska. What's going on in Nebraska? Well, they're fighting between state lines here already. Um, I've been following this, and I just did a checkup recently, and... Um, I never saw the Hunger Games, but this sounds like a theme to me. Um, so yeah, people are meeting next month about Lake Mead, um, Nebraska, um, Colorado, Nebraska. They're tussling over water rights amid drought. What's going on is Nebraska announced a $500 million plan to claim water from Colorado. So, all this dam and water business could really be full-time work. So, start looking for yourself, kids. Water is a huge deal. Water, water and climate change are how they're going to pull off this eugenics deal, right? Just think logically, okay? If you are going to try to murder off the entire society that you don't agree with, meaning those of us that they don't want to have around, you wouldn't come out directly and say, hey, we're going to murder all of you. You would do it in a way that appeared like you were blameless, right? So if you become blameless over the weather, if you become blameless over the fact there's droughts, you're blameless over those Russians and Ukrainians, it gives you a pretty big cover. And really, the, the amount of ignorance that we're dealing with in our society these days, I hate to say, most people are buying 100% of this deal here. So what's going on with Nebraska? Well, pretty big deal because... Like I said, they use the legal system. That's their system. 
And remember, most politicians are also lawyers, right? So evidently, back in the day, they set up a deal between excuse me, Alaska, between Colorado and Nebraska to share water, okay? And um, what's going on with that? Well, they figured they found a loophole. So I think what they're going to do, and I'm just thinking, okay, it appears to me what they're going to be doing is they're playing this deal out between Nebraska and Colorado, for example. Same thing with Lake Mead. They're meeting next month about this stuff, right? Well, what they'll do is they'll play out this season, screw with the farmers in the area who aren't going to be able to have these crops because of, well, I don't know, the severe heat, all the other issues. Um, we had cold weather coming into the planting season, unusually cold weather. Now we're being burned alive in this state. But anyway, so yeah. So I think that what's going to happen is they're going to play this deal out, and then they're going to say, oh, well, you know, let's raise some more money, and we will fix this deal for next year. Well, I don't think next year is going to come. So anyway, so what's the deal here? Well, there's this place called the Fort Platte River. It's flows in Colorado, okay? And I'll have pictures of this over at the website. And they said, as climate change fueled mega drought edges eastward, Nebraska wants to divert water in Colorado by invoking an obscure 99-year-old comp compact between the state that allows Nebraska to seize Colorado land along the South Platte River to build a canal. Hold on to your hat. Let's just get started, kids. Okay, so one other thing that I'll put over on the website this fascinating, and I'm talking fascinating story about the Hetch Hetchy water in California. Hetch Hetchy, what a name, right? Well, Hetch Hetchy is a really big deal, and it also it also shows, I, when I found it, I was like, oh, okay, this is huge, right? Well, it's about the water, but it shows how they use the legal system to divert water and the rights of the water it, it's a big deal. But anyway, here's what was interesting about Hetch Hetchy, okay? The Hetch Hetchy water, there was resistance from the public in the early 1900s to um, deal with the Hetch Hetchy water, okay? Because they wanted to flood out the area and create this dam. So anyways, so what happened was, was that there was resistance. Well, what eased the resistance? Well, nothing else but the San Francisco earthquake. <laughs> I talked about that a few months ago. San Francisco earthquake was simply dynamite and fire, okay? So, yeah, so they used the San Francisco earthquake to get this Hetch Hetchy deal through. And it is a fascinating story of theft and robbery in this country. I mean, they were able to literally hijack a tremendous and valuable and majestic piece of property to grab it for themselves. So yeah, and this is how they use the legal system. They set up the laws and then they use the legal system to manipulate them all around. So go look at Hetch Hetchy. It's a fascinating story about how they grab the water. Water is a big deal. And the reason for this segment besides wanting to talk to you about water, start paying attention. Look around for yourself. Look around your area. Do you have dams in your area? I know in China what they're doing right now is they're making unannounced dam releases. What that means is without any warning to the villages, they will just turn the dam loose and flood them out. I mean, flooding them out to like the third story of places, okay? So they're using the dams as weapons also in China to wipe out entire villages. 
And these same villages, what they're doing now is the first case I have found of them tying these health cards to the banking system. What they're doing in China, they have their health system already in play, right? The you know system for good behavior and whatnot. Well, what's happened is they have these um, banks in the villages, which turns out weren't really even legal or whatever. So the bottom line is a lot of people are getting their money held up by the bank in China in these villages. Well, what happened was was that since it's the first case that I found as far as them tying the social credits to the money, what they did what they did was this. People were obviously out protesting because of the, uh, well, because of the fact the bank was closed all of a sudden and had their money, right? Um, well, what happened was, was the people who were protesting, all of a sudden their health cards turned red, meaning that they were then had to be gathered up to, and put into quarantine. See how this works? Um, yeah, so they tied the social credits together with the bank. So people complained about the bank, got hauled off to be in quarantine. I would be very careful moving forward. I'm going to be covering a lot about the cops today. Make your mind up. Are you going to be answering the door? Do you have a way to protect your windows to not show any light into your house? One thing I thought about this week was, you know, they have they sell this window film, and it's pretty cheap, and you can put it over your windows so you can't see in or out. Well, I would seriously start looking for ways to make your place dark and hide your position because... They have already said, and go look at my show about how food will control us, they have already said, as of a couple of years ago, they were preparing U.S. military bases in the event they needed places to put people. So, if I were you, I wouldn't want to be one of those people that gets put onto a U.S. military base. So, anyways, decisions, decisions, right? So, here's my main point here. This next clip you're going to hear is about this character called Lilith. Um, I've been doing a lot of research into the aspect of black magic in this thing. Magic, black magic, whatever you want to call it. And the story about Lilith is very interesting. Remember, this is their fairy tale, okay? This is their story about the world and the Bible is woven into all this and the fantasy of these people and how they all interact. Well, the reason I'm interested in Lilith is she was supposedly a magic evil woman. And in this story about Lilith is also a story of an owl. Remember I've been talking about the owl out there at um, Bohemian Grove. They like that owl symbolism. So Lilith is also seen to be responsible for, for males' erotic dreams and night emissions. Lilith is regarded as the first woman ever made, ever made, Although her rebellion resulted in her banishment and subsequent adoption of demon status, Lilith is the oldest known female spirit of the world. In Jewish tradition, she is the most notorious demon, but in some other sources, scroll down here, she appears as the first woman created on earth. I will let you hear the story about Lilith, and here again, everything we post at the website and come to your own conclusions. Pretty fascinating story, right? We have those snakes again. We have the Pope sitting in a room that has snake pictures. <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned this during the show, but, you know, Pope Francis sits at this place where they have snakes, a big snake head coming out of it. So, yeah, this, this brings in the owl imagery, the uh, snake. It brings in this 
woman named Lilith. And is some of it a joke? Don't know. Could be. Um, they see Lilith as some sort of feminist icon. Well, I'm not going to get into all that. But anyway, so just take a listen to what Lilith is all about in this. And this description I found does a pretty good job of explaining where Lilith appears in different parts of the Bible. Okay. So I will leave it for there for you to take a, take a listen to Lilith. And here again, go over to the website. The whole show will be over there also for you to get a hard copy of it if you'd like. Lilith, known by legend as Adam's first wife, she was the first woman, before Eve was even created and before the eating of the forbidden fruit in the garden. Lilith is the woman mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, while Eve was the woman mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. Lilith betrayed Adam and became the bride of Satan and the mother of demons. At least, this is the way Lilith was portrayed by some in the early 2nd millennium CE. The story of Lilith, however, dates back thousands of years and spans countless civilizations. And these are her true origins. The astute reader of the first two chapters of Genesis will notice that Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 seem to contain two different accounts of the creation of humankind. For many Jews and Christians today, they do not see these two accounts as different. The explanation often given for this is that Genesis chapter 2 simply expands on the information given in Genesis chapter 1. Biblical scholarship since the early 1900s has taken a slightly different approach to answering this question. The leading theory today among Old Testament scholars as to why there are two different accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is called the documentary hypothesis, which suggests that Moses did not write the Pentateuch, aka the first five books of the Bible. The documentary hypothesis theorizes that the book of Genesis is a composite text made up of many different texts stitched and woven together by several different people over different time periods living in different locations throughout the ancient Near East. But these two explanations have not always been the understanding. Ancient people wondered about this very question as well, and at times they came up with very different theories, and their theories usually came in the form of creating new and expansive stories to fill in the gaps. And by the end of the first millennium CE, there was a perfect opportunity for the legend of Lilith to fill that gap. According to an anonymous Jewish text titled The Alphabet of Ben Sirah, dating to the Middle Ages, the reason there is a difference between Genesis 1 and 2 is because there are two very different stories. The first created woman in Genesis 1 wasn't Eve, but an evil demon named Lilith. Eve didn't come into the story until Genesis chapter 2. So who was Lilith, what are her origins, and how did she eventually become viewed as being Adam's first demonic wife? To thoroughly trace the origins and history of Lilith, we must first travel back in time over 5,000 years to one of the most ancient civilizations of all time, the civilization of Sumer. The Sumerian peoples were the first civilization to permanently settle into the land of Mesopotamia, which is located primarily in modern-day Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The earliest mythology of Lilith was likely born here in Sumerian oral tradition. We know very little of who Lilith might have been during this time period, considering oral tradition is, by definition, 
oral and not written down. However, scholars believe that the mythology of Lilith must have been originally passed down orally because she, or more accurately, they, feature prominently in later written Sumerian texts. The concept of Lilith first appeared in Sumerian myth in the third millennium BCE and were a class of wind and storm demons called the Lilitu. One of, if not the earliest references of Lilith can be found in the ancient Sumerian text called Inanna in the Halupu tree. This story was likely passed down orally initially until it was eventually written down between 2900 and 2750 BCE. Inanna in the Halupu tree is a wonderful little story about Inki, the Sumerian god of creation and wisdom, who plants a tree near the bank of the Euphrates River. One day, a strong south wind uprooted the tree and blew it into the Euphrates River. As the tree was floating down the river, Inanna, the Sumerian goddess of love, beauty, and sex, plucked the tree out of the river and planted it in her holy garden in the Sumerian city of Uruk. Inanna cared for this tree day and night, wondering how long it would take until the tree was big enough to make for herself a throne and a bed. Ten years passed and the tree was now thick and tall. But then, the text says, then a serpent who could not be charmed made its nest in the roots of the halupu tree. Then Anzu, the bird god, set his young in the branches of the tree, and the dark maid Lilith built her home in the trunk. Inanna, the young woman who loved to laugh, began to weep. Oh, how Inanna wept, yet they would not leave her tree. Then the mighty hero Gilgamesh, yes, the same Gilgamesh from the very popular Epic of Gilgamesh, came in to save the day. Gilgamesh came to Inanna's rescue, adorned in his extremely heavy battle armor and wielding a 700-pound bronze axe. Gilgamesh strikes the serpent dead, causing the Anzu bird to fly away. Then Gilgamesh smashed Lilith's home, driving her to flee into the wild, uninhabited wilderness. In this most ancient story of Lilith, she is not yet seen as a demoness, per se, but more of a powerful nuisance. All of the gods in the Halupu tree are significant but less prominent Sumerian gods, and this is exactly where Lilith finds her place in the most ancient form of Sumerian mythology. The similarities Lilith has to owls should be rather obvious after reading Inanna in the Halupu tree. Lilith makes her home in the trunk of the tree, just like owls. Then she goes off into the uninhabited wilderness, which is often where owls make their homes. Lilith's name is usually translated as night monster or night creature, but can also be translated as screech owl or little owl. As a matter of fact, the scientific name for the little owl is the Athene Noctua Lilith. And yes, the Athene is named after the Greek goddess Athena. The rock crevices in Athens and the Acropolis in ancient Greece were filled with small owls, believed to be the embodiment of Athena. Scholars believe that many aspects of Athena actually come from ancient stories of Lilith. The Lilithu Sumerian myths could have originated with Lilith being the personification of night owls. This personification in the ancient world almost always comes in the form of deification or becoming a god with an expansive mythology to follow. This can be seen in ancient Egyptian mythology as well, with Sobek as the crocodile god and Horus the falcon-headed god. These definitions and associations between Lilith and owls will be more prominent as we look at our next source for Lilith, 
which is the book of Isaiah. The only clear reference to Lilith in the entire Bible is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 34, verse 14. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas, and wild goats will bleat to each other. There the night creatures will also lie down and find for themselves places of rest. That translation was from the NIV, or the New International Version, and the NIV chooses to translate the Hebrew word leleth as night creatures. The King James Version translates it as screech owl, and the NRSV, or the New Revised Standard Version, translates it as Lilith. So what's going on here? What does the author of this section of the book of Isaiah really mean when he uses the Hebrew word leleth? Does he really believe in Lilith, the Sumerian storm god and demoness? Historically speaking, here is likely what's going on. The myth of the Sumerian Lilithu had longevity, meaning the mythology of Lilith didn't die out as many myths often do over time. What started in Sumerian mythology continued into Akkadian, Assyrian, and later Babylonian mythology as well. And we know that ancient civilizations shared ideas when two different cultures came into contact with one another. Most of them didn't live in their own little clans with no outside influence. Ancient civilizations came into contact with one another in two different ways, through trade routes and through military conquest. But an interesting thing happens when two cultures cross-pollinate. One culture usually takes the ideas and concepts from another culture and they adapt it and change it slightly to fit in their cultural landscape. This happens all the time in the ancient world, especially in the case of religion and mythologies. So what likely happened is that the mythology of Lilith spread westward via trade routes and military conquests and eventually made its way as far west as the Mediterranean Sea and even beyond. A quick and easy example of this can be seen by taking a look at Inanna, the goddess mentioned in the Halupu tree story. Inanna was Sumerian. She was later known as Ishtar in Babylonian mythology. And then the Canaanites, Hittites, and Egyptians adopted her mythology and called her Astarte. Then her mythology spread as far west as Greece and Rome. The Greeks called her Aphrodite and the Romans Venus. Now, obviously there are some differences between all of these different goddesses. The point I'm trying to make here is that Inanna started it all. She was the blueprint for all of these other goddesses. And when these cultures found out about Inanna, they adopted some of her ideas and changed others to fit in with their cultural and religious sensibilities. That's how things worked in the ancient world. You keep what you like and you change what you don't. All of that information just given is to prepare your mind to think about this question. Who or what was the author of Isaiah 34 referring to when he used the Hebrew word leleth? Historically speaking, I think there are two viable options, and really, the truth may be a little bit of both. The author of Isaiah 34 likely knew of the story of Lilith, and I'm certain by the mid to late 8th century BCE, which is when most scholars believe 1st Isaiah was written, the story of Lilith was well established throughout the entire Near East. So the author of this biblical passage had to, at the very least, know what mythology he was referring to. The interesting question then becomes, what was the mythology or the cultural understanding of Lilith in Jerusalem in the mid to late 8th century BCE? And that is a much more difficult question to answer. But we can be almost 100% certain that Lilith wasn't seen as the first wife of Adam or the mother of demons yet. That view of Lilith doesn't come for another couple thousand years. At this point in time, and in this geographic location, 
Lilith probably looked a lot like her Sumerian and especially her Babylonian counterparts, known as the Lilithu. She would have been heavily associated with owls. Lilith, like owls, are creatures of the night. They are also predatory birds, meaning they must hunt and kill other animals to survive. Lilith was no different. She was a creature of the night, believed to snatch people away and kill them, especially babies. So should the Hebrew word Lilith used in Isaiah 34 be translated as little owl or Lilith? Well, considering there is another Hebrew word for owl, I think the correct translation is Lilith. And I think that's the mythology that was in mind to the author of Isaiah. But it's still a little bit unclear as to whether or not the author of Isaiah 34 really believed in this mythology or not. Like, did the author really believe that there was an owl-like demoness woman running around in the wilderness? Or did they just use it as a metaphor to try and say that there are bad and evil things lurking out there? Well, unless you've got a time machine, I think this one is always going to be a mystery. The next source I'd like to focus on for Lilith can be found in the Song of the Sage, a work discovered as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here, Lilith finds her place, pretty definitively as a demon. The text reads, And I, the master, Proclaim the majesty of his beauty to frighten and terrify all the spirits of the destroying angels and the spirits of the bastards, the demons, Lilith, the howlers and the yelpers, they who strike suddenly to lead astray the spirit of understanding. This passage is interesting as it gives us insight into the religious thought of an Essene Jewish community living a few decades before the birth of Christ. The author of this work, whoever he might have been, had a more developed theology of Lilith, still slightly associated with owls, given the text says, they who strike suddenly to lead astray, as owls do seem to strike suddenly, but more significantly here, Lilith seems to be more associated with the spirits of the destroying angels and the spirits of the bastards and demons. Moving right along to our next source for Lilith, and that is the Babylonian Talmud. The Talmud is the central text of Rabbinic Judaism, along with the writings of the Hebrew Bible. The Talmud has two parts. The Mishnah, which is the written collection of the Oral Torah, written around 200 CE, and the Gemara, which is a collection of discussions on Jewish law and a harmonization between biblical and rabbinic versions of the law dating between 200 and 500 CE. Lilith first appears in Shabbat 151b, 10, in the Mishnah section of the Babylonian Talmud, which says this. Rabbi Hania said, It is prohibited to sleep alone in a house, and anyone who sleeps alone in a house will be seized by the evil spirit Lilith. Here, Lilith is seen as an evil people-snatching spirit that comes out at night, pretty similar to how Lilith is viewed in our previous sources. Again, kind of like an owl. The next passage about Lilith, also from the Mishnah section of the Babylonian Talmud, comes from Nidda 24b10. Rav Yehuda says that Samuel says, In the case of a woman who discharges a fetus that has the form of a Lilith, a female demon with wings and a human face, its mother is impure with the impurity of a woman after childbirth. It is a viable offspring, only it has wings. So this passage is basically saying that if a woman gives birth to a winged creature in the form of a Lilith, it is considered a viable offspring. This seems a little strange, but notice Lilith here is clearly defined as a female demon with wings and a human face. 
I'd like to pause here for a moment and point out that our first source for Lilith came from Sumerian mythology, and our last four sources have been from the Jewish perspective. But the mythology of Lilith was still circulating in the Mesopotamian area, now called Iraq. And it's in Iraq that we find our next source for Lilith, which is an incantation bowl, which are bowls with magical spells written in them. A particularly interesting incantation bowl can be seen here on the screen. It is written in Aramaic and dates to the late post-Sassanian period, circa 500 to 700 CE. The incantation bowl is a spell in the form of a bill of divorcement from demons and the devil. Here, Lilith appears again, or should I say Liliths. From this incantation bowl, we learn about someone named Bagdana, who is evidently a king of demons and the great ruler of the Liliths. This incantation bowl is designed to ward off the evil spirits and the evil Liliths in the name of the ineffable one, a phrase often used to refer to God. At this point in time, I feel like we have done a good job covering the origins of Lilith, who she was and where she came from in the ancient world. But now, with our next source, we're getting into the more arcane and fantastical stories about Lilith. And this next source is a medieval text titled The Alphabet of Ben Sira. This text is dated sometime between 700 and 1000 CE. This Alphabet of Ben Sira is where the myth of Lilith gets its most popular place in modern culture. It's the story that most people think of when they think of Lilith today. Alphabet of Ben Sira 23, A through B, says, Soon afterward, the young son of the king took ill. Nebuchadnezzar said, Heal my son. If you don't, I will kill you. Ben Sira immediately sat down and wrote an amulet with the holy name, and he inscribed on it the angels in charge of medicine by their names, forms, and images, and by their wings, hands, and feet. Nebuchadnezzar looked at the amulet and said, Who are these angels? Ben Sira replied, the angels who are in charge of healing, Sinoi, Sansinoi, and Semangeloth. When God created Adam, he was alone. Then God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Then he also created a woman from the earth, as he had created Adam, and called her Lilith. Adam and Lilith immediately began to fight about sex. Lilith said, I will not lie on bottom. And Adam says, well, I will not lie on bottom, but only on top. For you are fit only to be on the bottom position during sex, because I am the superior one. Lilith responded, We are equal to each other, inasmuch as we are both created from the earth. But they would not listen to one another. When Lilith saw this, she pronounced the ineffable name of God and flew away into the air. Adam stood in prayer before his creator. Sovereign God of the universe, the woman you gave me has run away. And at once God blessed Adam and sent these three angels to bring her back. God said to Adam, if she agrees to come back, what is made is good. If not, she must permit 100 of her children to die every day. The angels left God and pursued Lilith, who they overtook in the midst of the sea, in the mighty waters wherein the Egyptians were destined to drown. They told her God's word, but she did not wish to return. The angel said, We shall drown you in the sea. Leave me be, shouted Lilith. I was created only to cause sickness to infants. If the infant is male, I have dominion over him for eight days after his birth, and if female, for twenty days. When the angels heard Lilith's words, they insisted she go back. 
but she swore to them by the name of the living and eternal God, whenever I see you or your names or the forms in an amulet, I will have no power over that infant. She also agreed to have 100 of her children die every day. Accordingly, every day 100 demons perished, and for the same reason we write the angels' names on the amulets of young children. When Lilith sees their names, she remembers her oath, and the child recovers. And so here we get the story of Lilith being Adam's first wife. Lilith wasn't created from Adam's rib like Eve was. She was created from the same dirt of the ground that Adam was. Lilith is the Genesis 1 woman. Eve is the Genesis 2 woman. But unfortunately, Lilith and Adam couldn't agree on the proper sex position, so Lilith took off. You could say there was trouble in paradise. Oh, terrible joke. Lilith is then seen as the woman, or demon, who was destined to cause death and sickness to infants, which is how Lilith is seen more and more as time goes on. A demoness who snatches children out of the arms of nursing mothers to kill them. Lilith refuses to come back to Adam, so she makes a deal with these three angels. As long as she sees the names of the angels in an amulet, she won't harm the baby. This story very well could have been originally written as a satire or an ideological story explaining why people write the names of these three angels on their amulets. We know from certain amulets, like the Sefer Razael Hamalak, which is a medieval Kabbalistic textbook of magic, that amulets against Lilith would be worn around the necks of pregnant women or placed in rooms where newborn babies slept. It seems that by the time of the Middle Ages, Judaism's understanding of Lilith really focused on her as being a killer and snatcher of babies and the demoness of infanticide. Lilith's story doesn't end here. She is also mentioned in the Zohar, which is a 12th century work written in Spain and is the introductory text of Jewish mystical literature called Kabbalah. In the Kabbalah, Lilith takes on extraterrestrial powers. Lilith is not only the first wife of Adam, but also the wife of Satan. She is a chaotic counterpart to the feminine divine presence. In the Zohar, the Holy One, or the masculine aspect of the divine, separates from the feminine aspect of the divine and joins with Lilith instead. So Lilith and the Holy One are linked in this evil and chaotic sexual and spiritual relationship that will only be resolved when the Messiah comes and heals the brokenness of the world. So there you have it, the true origins of Lilith. Bonus fact! In America in 2020, Lilith was the 316th most common name for a girl. So that means in 2020 in America, one out of every 1,760 girls born were named Lilith. Stay thirsty for knowledge. There's a place I long to be Where the air is wild and free It's a little haven just for me I can let my hair down and be me just a smile for a start And it only takes a spark To begin the fire in your heart Wouldn't you agree? Hello listener, this is Hachi. I hope you are enjoying the show. We would like you to consider supporting us so as to keep giving you interesting content. Take a time out to check out the support page on the website and please consider making a kind donation. We would appreciate any little support. Thank you. Well, hello there. 
pull up a chair. Got quite an agenda for you today. Boy, what a long, long road this has been. So let me get going here. I have a million things to talk about today. You know, since we have identified, since I've been talking about the three main tentacles being the Vatican, Washington, D.C., and the City of London, a lot in this show is going to be about Rome. Rome, the Romans, Romania, Roman Empire, Italy, the Vatican, and how do they all connect? Well, you know, a lot of our customs and things come out of the supposedly the Roman Empire. For example, the early church, they followed the marriage customs of the Roman Empire. The ring, the bride's veil, and the exchange of promises that we know today all come from pagan Roman betrothal and marriage customs. Also today, I'm going to be talking about firemen and cops. How do they connect? Well, a very, very interesting story, I might say. Did you know that a lot of the cops in this country are Irish? Talk about the early victims becoming the victor, and I will leave that story for them. How did that possibly happen? Well, there's an interesting intersection of time that happened around that time, when those boats of immigrants were coming to this hellhole for a glimpse of a future, they had this age called the Golden Age of Fraternalism. It is a term referring to a period when membership in the fraternal societies in the United States grew at a very rapid pace in the latter third of the 19th century and continuing into the first part of the 20th. At its peak, it was suggested that as many as 40% of the adult male population held membership in at least one fraternal order. Lots of examples of fraternal orders. We have the Freemasons, the Knights of Columbus. Knights of Columbus I'll be talking about soon. They have the group called the Odd Fellows. The Good Templars could be from the Templar group, right? The Malta group. The Elks the Shriners, and the Rotary Club, as well as the second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. Clubs and things are good ways to indoctrinate people, get them going in a specific direction. And I believe that was used during that era to get the Irish coming off of those boats to become the policemen and the firemen as we see them here today. And there's a lot of bad information out there, kids, as far as people saying, oh, the military, they're going to be on our side. Oh, the cops. Well, just listen to the show and then think for yourself. And then there's a lot of other odd details. I'll be talking about, um, you know, Pope Francis, also a Jesuit, also a Jew, right? I talked about this so long ago, but why does Pope Francis, Paul, whatever his name is, um, or her name, they have this place at the Vatican called the Audience Hall. Audience, as an audience. It is also known as the Hall of the Pontifical Audience. It's a building in Rome, and it has a capacity for 6,300 people in the seated area, designed by an Italian architect, and completed in 1971. 
It was constructed on land donated by the Knights of Columbus. I sort of think the Knights of Columbus will tie us back to the Irish cops and firemen in this Italian wing of this deal. Knights of Columbus, yes, one of those groups that got started during that early time. So yeah, I think we could also start to take a closer look when we look at the thing in Israel. How did that all work? Well, I think you'll have to decide for yourself, and I'll have more in my closing comments, but I believe, believe, not just thinking, that, um, yeah, the Ashkenazi Jews likely aren't even from Israel. And I found a very interesting connection with the Yemen group, people from Yemen. Why were all these people brought over to Israel? Big questions, right? So yeah, so I go through a lot about the history of the cops in this country. Why did I come up with the cops? Well, because all this DNA for genetic stuff with the Ashkenazi Jew populations I've been talking about. Well, there was a clip um, that I played before when they were talking about sounding the alarm for these diseases. Well, one of the groups they talked about was the Irish having these diseases within the Ashkenazi population. Well, I think I have the answer for why that happened. Why are Irish people coming down with diseases that are known to the Ashkenazi Jews? Very interesting story there. And what about those bagpipes? The bagpipes come from Scotland. Do you realize that the bagpipes play this uh, song, Amazing Grace, the most popular song in the world. They march around, very ritual. They wear kilts, the cops and the firemen do, and there's bagpipe things going on. And why is that? Why are the cops and the firemen in this country dancing around wearing kilts and playing bagpipes? Kind of an interesting story. I cover a lot about the Israelis and the Palestinians. Who are the people living in the homes and who are the people living behind the fences? Well, that would be the Palestinians. So a lot of suspicious details between the Ashkenazi Jews and the Palestinians. And that will be it for today. I didn't get to the black nobility part. I'm not even sure that they're nobles. I think they probably gave themselves royal titles, but kind of worn out. So anyway, pull up a chair. Be ready to have a snack during the middle part of it and enjoy the show. And I will chat with you later. Okay, let's talk about the history of the cops, also known as the police. Um, quite interesting now that I um, have a lot more information to go on here. I believe very strongly that the whole purpose of cops was to um, keep them in check more than the rest of us. And you'll get to understand more of my thinking as I go along here. It's kind of a rambling file here, so welcome to the club. Um, I'm going to be going over a few things that I've gone over in the past because this pulls it into better context for us. Because in the past I've talked about, oh, the insane asylums, 
actually served as prisons for um, people. Those were the early jails, were the insane asylums. And they had this original thing. They said before, because remember too, the police are key because the police were pre the FBI and all of that, right? And I don't believe that we needed watching over. I believe that they needed watching over. But let me explain how they explained it, okay? They said the night watch is what they were called originally. And they said before a formal police system was put in place, colonies were protected by a night watch dating back to the 1630s. Um, the night watch was made up of men who volunteered for a night's worth of work. Sometimes people were put on the watch as a form of punishment for committing a crime. These watchmen, however, were known to sleep and drink while on duty. The first night watch was founded in Boston in the 1630s and the New York followed suit in the 1650s. During this time period, the wealthiest in the colonies also hired people for protection. Those hired for protection were mostly criminals. So they hired criminals for protection. Now, is this starting to sound kind of familiar about how the, uh, oh, I don't know, the mafia, <laughs> the mafia was playing the criminal act while the, you know, the cops and the FBI were acting like they were trying to catch them? So, yeah, um, also, and I've talked about this in the past, um, there's a show I did in the last, I don't know, six, eight months um, about the Pinkertons. Pinkerton is the oldest um, private police force in this country. And I believe that Pinkertons also set up the uh, SS deal in Germany. And there again, the SS deal, we have that Wolf Angel deal in the picture again. So yeah, Pinkerton is a different deal because they were a private, private funded thing, okay? And actually all of these things kind of came out of the Pinkerton deals to a degree. So the history of the police in the South differs from other parts of the country because of the prominence of slavery. The first form of policing in the South was norm known as slave patrol which began in the colonies of Carolina in 1704. The patrol was usually made up of three to six men riding horseback and carrying whips, ropes, and even guns. The group's main duties included chasing and hunting escaped slaves, releasing terror on slave communities to prevent riots, and to keep plantation owners in check according to Ben Fountain's book, Beautiful Country Burn Again. Yeah, here, let me read this again. The group's main duties included chasing and hunting escaped slave, slaves, releasing terror on slave communities to prevent riots, and to keep plantation owners in check. Serve multiple purposes there. The slave patrols lasted until the Civil War and eventually gave way to the Ku Klux Klan. Everything is a continuum with these people, right? And I have said for years, they are making it up as they go along. In the North, as more immigrants moved into cities by the mid-1800s, a key date for me here, citizens looked for a more formal way to keep, keep order. They said citizens look for a more formal way to keep order. What, to protect us from them? 
Little did they know what they were calling in, right? Immigrants from Germany and Ireland began sudden. Pay very close attention to the Ireland part here, kids. It will get very interesting in a, in a segment or two about how the Irish, you know, the Irish Catholics, policemen, firemen, key role here. So anyways, immigrants from Germany and Ireland began settling in cities like Boston and New York between 1820 and 1860. And remember also, we have the Irish people coming in through the ports at, um, excuse me, I'm <laughs> my brain this morning. We have the ports coming in through New Orleans also, right, at that, that significant time. The Irish were brought in through New York and also through the other port. And basically, it was set up as a clash, okay? Does any of this sound kind of familiar? This new group of immigrants, meaning the Irish and Germans, began settling in New York and Boston between 1820 and 1860, okay? This new group of immigrants clashed with original settlers from England and the Netherlands. As the original settlers argued that the new immigrants were ruining American society, crime began to rise. The city saw mobs, public lewdness, disorderly conduct, and prostitution. The cities were ill-equipped to keep order, and the night watch was rendered useless. So now we're looking at, around the 1860s, having trouble keeping order. Well, also remember, they were also cleaning out institutions in the UK and in Ireland, of people they had deemed crazy over there, they were unleashing those people onto those boats being brought over here. So there was a lot of a lot of issues with the people they were bringing over at the same time, right? <clears throat> so in response to all this, the first official police force was established in Boston in 1838, okay? The American police force has existed in some form for more than 350 years. In fact, the first law enforcement groups were formed before the United States declared independence from Great Britain in 1776. Yes, as a matter of fact, um, a couple of years ago when I was looking into um, the military force and all about this country, uh, I ran into all these militia groups that are still in existence now that were in existence before 1776. So. Yeah, yeah, they, they have us pretty well surrounded in the steel, so don't kid yourself on that one, okay? Over the years, a police force has transformed from volunteer watch groups to tech-savvy, highly trained officers of the law. There's a reason why you hear people always refer to this place as a nation of laws. Yes, we are a nation of laws. And they have all these attorneys, all these cops, all these people to enforce those nations of laws. And I have to argue that most of those laws are being, oh, I don't know, guarded to protect money. It has to do with them more than us, right? And also, if they caught wind of someone in our caste group getting involved in, let's say, drug sales or something, the cops would be able to shut that down because it would be intruding on their business model, right? So you have to think of all the different angles, right? Because some people would also have psychopathic behavior and think that some of these things were good to do. Mimicking what the authorities are doing. 
See what I'm saying? So, for example, the, the cops and the doctors are the drug runners, right? They're the ones putting drugs out to the public. Well, then the cops act like they're the ones enforcing the drug laws. Well, <laughs> there needs to be a little bit of thinky-thinky going on here, right? It appears to me that the rats are the ones in the chicken coop here, okay? And the mission of all police officers is to protect and serve which means that law enforcement professionals play an important role in keeping communities safe. While they, of course, apprehend criminals and carry out the criminal justice process, police officers also prevent crime and provide public support. The multifaceted role that police play has evolved over time, but since its formation centuries ago, Law enforcement has been a central part of state, local, and federal governments in the United States. Yes, and I've talked about this in the past also, the militarization of the U.S. Uh, police force. And all these preppers on the um, CIA, you know, YouTube, have talked about, oh, we can trust the military because they're one of us. <laughs> well, I got news for you kids, the military and the and the police are pretty much, the lines are pretty blurred in those groups. And if you want to see more blurred lines, look into ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement. That group just kind of sprung up out of nowhere, I think was under Bush. Yeah, ICE runs around just brutally arresting people and tossing them back across the border. Yeah, I would like to hear a good argument for how this country is, in fact, a police state and has been since the beginning. But let me get back on track here. Okay, so... In the beginning, police forces, colonial police forces, were not part of a government agencies. Instead, they were made up of volunteers and other citizens, known as watch groups. Police forces were privately funded and often employed individuals on a part-time basis. Watch groups were formed in the major colonial cities. Boston started its first in 1631, followed by New York City in 1658 and Philadelphia in 1700. It is significant that the colonies had police forces in place decades before they achieved independence. Yes, it is very significant. It's significant that the colonies had police forces in place decades before they achieved independence. Another key fact here is, you know, how many shows have I done as far as talking about the fact that they also have the mental institutions built in this country significantly before this all was taking place, right? Or right about this 1800 time, all those mental facilities were built. These groups had several responsibilities, including protecting property and public safety. Watch groups also perform public services. According to the history of the police, I'm sure that's really a non-balanced group. Um, watch groups provided social services, included lighting street lamps, running soup kitchens, recovering lost children, capturing runaway animals, and a variety of other services. Despite their myriad responsibilities, the volunteer system proved too disorganized to serve as a long-term solution, the same source notes. Yeah. Well, look who's in charge. These people don't, don't exactly excel in uh, organizational skills, if you ask me. Well, particularly this group now. Um, 
Okay, the 1700s ushered in widespread population growth in major U.S. cities. As such, watch groups were no longer a tenable solution and were then replaced with formalized police organizations. Okay, as the nation moved into the 19th century, more and more citizens designated official police departments. New York formed one in 1845. Chicago, 1854, and Los Angeles, 1869. Also, that gives us some good dates because I don't believe they, you know, I believe they're making it up as they went along. So these dates make a great deal of sense to me because, um, the, you know, they they landed with a, with a bunch of criminals themselves, right? I think they, they brought criminals of their own type in with other people, like, for example, my grandparents. They would have come in with other people who probably had a lot different motives going on, right? People who weren't willing to, you know, hack it out in Montana for all those years. People who uh, had other plans. Because um, there's a way they've been storing up these psychopaths for this, this lifetime. And um, it, it can get really confusing sounding right now. So let me stick with the police because... I thought for years that this country had the highest concentration of psychopaths in the world, and sadly, I'm right, but I'll get to that Get to that later. Let me stick here. So, yeah, 1860s, they have formal police departments, right, designated by more citizens. See, there's always a cause and effect, right? People probably just got sick of their criminal ways and thought a police department... Evil always has to come packaged as help. If you haven't heard anything I've ever said hear those words um, and here's where it really starts to blend because um, the second continental congress founded the army in 1775 so that would have been a hundred years before the cops okay it's the oldest service of the united states military originally formed to protect the freedom of the first 13 colonies. So originally the colonies were protected by military force. The army has evolved and grown from the small militia force into the world's premier fighting force. And boy, has it ever. Okay, let me see how I'm doing on time here. Um, yeah, this is quite a history. Let me go a little bit longer here. Um, okay, so... The U.S. was different from, uh, this is from circa 1915. The U.S. was different from other countries during this time period because the nation created specific requirements and regulations for its publicly funded police force. Here again, we have paid to have the police brutalize us. We pay them to do eugenics on us. Yeah, quite a scam they have going on, right? Police had authority defined by written law, and local governments were tasked with providing police services to their communities. Even more significantly, law enforcement remained fragmented, with different agencies existing at the same time. It sounds like our people, doesn't it? Ruling by chaos, right? Ruling by chaos. For example, the local police, high patrol, and corrections officers serve different purposes, but fall in the category of law enforcement. In addition, some job duties overlap, such as local police monitoring for traffic violations while on duty. 
Yeah, they were setting up their structure, is what they were doing, making it up as they went along. As technology became more sophisticated, so did police work. Several key developments kept law enforcement in step with the evolution of crime. Well, they, they kept it in check with the evolution of crime because they were worth working both sides of the fence, right? You have the police enforcing things on probably the rest of us while they're also protecting their own people who are doing the actual robberies and stuff, right? So, yeah. Um, several key developments kept law enforcement in step according to the National Committee on Crime Justice Technology and the National Institute of Justice. For example, fingerprinting was implemented in the 1900s. Crime labs gained popularity in the 1920s, and the 911 emergency system was introduced in the 1960s. This change, in particular, had a sizable impact on response units efficiency. Yes, the 911 emergency system. We also had 9-11, the event, right? They like that 9-11. Um, yeah, so... Is one of, the law enforcement of the United States is one of three major components in the criminal justice system, along with courts and corrections. So it's criminal justice, courts, and corrections. Although each component operates semi-independently, the three collectively form a chain leading from an investigation of suspected criminal activity to the administration of criminal punishment. Yeah, in some of their criminal punishments, um, they have, um, if it's a, if it's a, if it's an under local jurisdiction, that falls out of the police, okay, just to keep things very simple here. When they cook up the FBI, the FBI is to take care of things that happen between state lines, okay? But the police are always involved. Like, for example, when they were so-called investigating the mafia early on, um, well, the mafia was being investigated by the police and the FBI, right? And it came under the court system. Well, it was all a scam. So the court system actually helped them keep the scam going longer because it looked like they were after the mafia when really they were just playing out the clock. And this will make a lot more sense when you get to my thinking as far as the um, Irish and um, uh, Silicon Valley and all of the other things that play into this. You know, Silicon Valley really was pre was mafia before it was Silicon Valley. Um, everything becomes a continuum of the next. So it has three components, and yes, they all do work very tightly together, don't they? There are more than 900,000 sworn law enforcement officers now serving in the United States, which is the highest figure ever. About 12% of those are female, and a great percentage of the males are men who are hiding as women jacked up on testosterone. A very ugly combination here. Look around for yourself. Use those eyes, kids. All you have to do is just, if you, if you run across an article about, let's say, some small town somewhere, just go, okay, let me look around this small town. Go over to the Google machine and look up that small town. Look up who's in charge of the police in that small town. Who is the, who's the mayor of that small town? I think you might be quite surprised at what you're going to find. So, yeah, um, it has been um, 
very effectively, and let me get back away from here because when you hear more in the segment or two as far as the Irish, um, the coordination of the cops and the law enforcement is actually quite brilliant in many ways. So, okay, law enforcement operates primarily through government police agencies. There's 17,985 police agencies in the United States, which include police departments, county sheriff's offices, state police highway patrol, and federal law enforcement agencies. The law enforcement purposes of these agencies are the investigation of suspected criminal activity, the refer referral of the results of investigation to state or federal prosecutors. So yes, these agencies do the investigating of the suspected criminal activity and they refer those results to the state or federal prosecutors. So they all essentially work together, okay? And the temporary detention of suspected criminal pending judicial action. And yeah, the t temporary detention of suspected criminals pending judicial action is actually a huge deal in this country because if you do not have money to post bail for your alleged crimes, you could stay in jail for a very long time pending some sort of court appearance. Full disclosure, I have spent a full 24 hours in a U.S. county jail. It was absolutely a very unpleasant experience, I must admit. I'm pretty sure I talked about it once before. Yeah, they had me locked up in a cell, and yeah, it was something else. Um, full 24 hours, and uh, yeah, some very bad advice from some sleazy attorneys when I was in that lawsuit with Intel. So yeah, I spent a night there. Um, and people, people in this country, their first response to, if you try to tell, I try to tell a couple of people that I knew about having been spent a night in jail, and people were like, well, I think you should sue them. That's not right. Well, yeah, they do a lot of things that aren't right, okay? Um, and how, how do you sue them, right? Because they're running a criminal enterprise. So, yeah, I always kind of instinctively thought, well, what's the pur purpose of suing them? They are the system, right? So, yeah, they can lock us up whenever they want. They've been busy signing laws like crazy to lock people up and seize property. Those are already all in place. So if you're listening to people telling you these things might happen, well, you have to ask yourself this. Why are all these laws in place right now? What, just in case it happens? <laughs> Is that what it sounds like to you? So, um, yeah, so they, um, they get back with these law enforcement people. Yeah, law enforcement is a really big deal, okay? And if you don't think the ones at the top aren't running some sort of gangs, I mean, I talked about the um, sheriff's gangs in L.A. Uh, I know for a fact that all of the top cops in this country are transgendered. I I've looked around at enough small regional areas that i got to be a bit suspicious, right? Um, so... Law enforcement agencies are also involved in providing first response to emergencies and other threats to public safety. The protection of certain public facilities and infrastructure, the maintenance of public order, the protection of public officials, and the operation of some detention facilities, usually at the local level. Yes, detention facilities, don't kid yourself, this country is littered with U.S. military bases, lots of places to put people for possible detention in the future. 
Okay, three styles of policing developed from a jurisdiction's socioeconomic characteristics. The government organization and choice of police administrators, yes. When you get into some poor areas, it becomes a very truly sad ordeal just with the, um, well, I mean, let's face it, everything has been just eugenics and torture. So, um, I'll hear something else about these watchmen. Um, the watchman emphasizes maintaining order, usually found in communities with a declining industrial base and a blue-collar mixed ethnic racial population. So, um, originally watchmen were found in communities, okay? Communities that were being, they were on the decline, right? Talk about a mix. Open up some bars and some pubs in town, there you got your perfect mix. Bring in your agents to, you know, stir up a little dissension between people. Um, this form of policing is implicitly less proactive than other styles, and certain offenses may be overlooked on a variety of social, legal, and cultural grounds, as long as public order is maintained. Yeah, well, it's all about maintaining public order now, isn't it? Okay. Um... Legalistic emphasizes law enforcement and professionalism. This is usually found in reform societies. No, we don't care about that now. Um, they want to emphasize service, but I would have to say that we're in a dual society. They do not, in fact, serve the public. So there's not much reason to read this part of it. So, um, oh, this is interesting. Um, policing in what would become the United States arose from the law enforcement systems in European countries, particularly the ancient English common law system. This relied heavily on citizen volunteers, as well as watch groups, constables, sheriffs, and a conscription system known as posse comitatus, similar to the militia service. Interesting. Well, this country had all these militias back then, too. Um, and early night watch, Boston. Oh, they had an example of one. Constables in Boston were tasked with surveying land, serving warrants, and enforcing punishments. Okay. Um, a rattle watch was formed in New Amsterdam, later to become New York City, in 1651. It's the, they're called the Rattle Watch. They stroll the streets to discourage crime and search for lawbreakers and also serve as town criers. See, you notice that this language here, right? They're searching for lawbreakers, right? Always on the hunt for somebody they could, they could perceive doing something wrong. And uh, because they're the ones that are criminals, right? <clears throat> so, of course, they're out on the hunt for other criminals. Okay, um, yeah, I don't know about some of these late dates, but anyways, um, modern policing began to emerge in the United States in the mid-19th century. It's all done in the British model, all of it. And I will be having a thing here, a lot of things come out of this police thing. You know, here I just start, I thought, well, I'll just take a quick look at the police. <laughs> well, 
I don't know, the police are all, they're all about the Irish, T turns out they're all about the Scottish, um, turns out the police uh, play bagpipes for funeral possessions, I'll play some bagpipe music in here today, This during this show. Yeah, so police actually became much more complicated than I thought, because I was thinking, well, police, they just set up some night watchmen, had some police, already talked about this in the past, well, Turns out that the police actually got going on some pretty, pretty shaky ground. So, yeah, I don't need to tell you about the police to this date because it went from basically, um, we, we could be detained at any time, any time in any place. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise because they're just kidding. They don't know what they're talking about. And remember, in order to go after the enemy, which would mean we being the enemy, there has to be a certain sense of calm, right, and attention elsewhere. For example, like eyes on Ukraine versus eyes on possibly stocking up food for themselves here, right? So, um, yeah, that's about all I have to say about... Oh, also, the um, law enforcement in this country can lie their heads off to you. In what they can do is um, they actually can come up with... Um, if they're trying to interrogate you, or if they are interrogating you for a crime, and they're saying that you did it, they'll actually show um, falsified um, DNA reports and stuff and say, oh, here, we've got the report, you better admit it. <laughs> so, the, the length that they will go to to lie is extraordinary. And that's how they, they've gotten us all this time, because we're not familiar with people who so aggressively will lie in so many different ways. So, yeah. The recent years, the use of military equipment and tactics for community policing and for public order, pu public order policing has become more widespread under the 1033 program. The program prompted discussion among lawmakers in the 2014 after unrest in Ferguson, Missouri under President Obama. And uh, Trump reinstated the program. So yeah, they, 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 they say that they overrule these things, but they never ever, in fact, go away. Because remember, we are owned and controlled by them from the day that our parents put our birth certificates. So, um, otherwise, um, they have civil asset forfeiture for us white people on the road. That's where they can grab whatever they want. If officers find drugs in a house, they could take cash from the house and possibly the house itself. Police have all kinds of power here, just all kinds of power. And uh, I'm not really sure what I'll be back with next, but there's a lot here to discuss about the cops. And every time there is an incident with the police, they say, oh, well, I think it's the recruiting. Oh, I think it's the training. No, it is part of the plan with the system, not the bug in the system. They are not, in fact, here to protect and to serve. But I would say quite the opposite. Everybody has heard of Tay-Sachs disease, which is the original disease for which screening became available in the early 1970s. Uh, the first testing was done by an enzyme assay, 
and that was a very much a grassroots ac um, activity in the Jewish community where thousands turned out to be screened. And since that time, the number of babies born with Tay-Sachs disease in the Jewish community has decreased by 90%. It was a very effective campaign. It still is a well-known disease, and pretty much everybody of Jewish descent knows that they should be screened, and so do their doctors. The problem with Tay-Sachs is that it is not just a Jewish disease. It occurs in other communities, and with intermarriage, that is becoming more of an issue because some places screen only with DNA testing. And the DNA testing has mutations or gene alterations that are geared to the Jewish community and not the community in general, not the general population. So if someone who is not Jewish is screened without the enzyme, you could miss that person as being a carrier. And one of the things we're undertaking in our department here right now is a research study in the Irish community because we have seen a number of babies born with Tay-Sachs disease to Irish families in Philadelphia, and we want to establish the carrier rate for Tay-Sachs and the Irish, and then provide guidelines for screening the Irish population. It also occurs in the French Canadians and Cajun populations. So my feeling is that ultimately Tay-Sachs, while it is considered a Jewish genetic disease, really should be one where the population is screened with the enzyme test, which is not a difficult test and not a very expensive test. So that is the most well-known of the Jewish genetic diseases. But Gaucher disease is the most common Jewish genetic disease with a carrier rate of 1 in 15. And that disease it's important to know about because there are potential treatments for that disease. So it may actually be more suitable for newborn screening to find children with Gaucher disease and then to monitor them and ultimately treat them if they need it. But it's a very variable condition, can be very severe. about the Irish cops. This is fascinating stuff, right? Well, I have wondered about the Irish for a long time. You've heard me talk about the Irish coming over here on boats. I think a lot of, um, well, a lot of people were brought over here on boats because they needed, um, the, they actually needed the weight of people to bring the boats back, right? Sending boats from this country to Europe you know, things like cotton and things like that. Well, immigrants were then used to keep the boat steady on the way back, right? Because they needed bodies to keep the boats going. So anyway, so it became cheap passage. And a couple of things happened because of the famine of the potato famine, which impacted the Irish, you know, that caused a flood of um, immigration to this country. Always about cause and effect, right? I believe that the famine was created by these people, right? So that makes it even more interesting because I have been thinking that the Irish played a pretty big role also into this thing. And um, because of the Irish um, cops, this country has a history of Irish cops and firemen. 
So this whole idea about Irish cops and firemen have been like floating around my head for a long time. And I was listening to the clip that you just heard a bit of about the Ashkenazi Jews and they're, you know, they're putting out the alarm in a pretty loud way right now because of these issues with their DNA. Well, um, I about shot up straight when I listened to it again because um, I thought, well, why are they looking to, why are they including the Irish in this, right? Well, because, likely because of how the Irish played a role in being cops. Because cops consider themselves a brotherhood, right? Kind of ties them together as kind of like a gang kind of a thing, right? And who who protected the mafia and the people that I've been talking about? Well, that would be the cops, right? The cops in general. You know, the cops, the FBI. It took all of them to, to protect the mafia crime organization when it was going on, right? So... Um, so yeah, cops have played a very significant role in all of this. So yeah, um, I'll have to get to what I think about at the, at the very closing because I, I believe that there was a lot of converting of children um, who were being born to cops and converting them, flipping them into being transgender, and that, that's just too much for right this second here. So. Um, Cops have this brotherhood, and most cops are also uh, Masons, um, but not all, all of them are Freemasons. So that aside, you know, they have a very um, camaraderie-ship, right? And lots of um, cops seem to run in families in this country. You know, the father was a cop, the grandfather was a cop, then the son becomes a cop, right? So why is that, and why are the Irish so heavily into being cops? And let's keep in mind, too, that... The Irish are also heavily Catholic. See where we're going with this? Um, so, yeah, the cops play a dual role in all of this, right? They're supposedly the enforcers of the rules. Well, you know, I don't believe that most of us would be breaking these rules. Um, one theory I've been thinking about is that cops play an important role, likely to even manage within themselves, right? Because when you hear about these famous cases of somebody getting caught doing something, well, that person is one of them, right? So are they punishing that person, or is it all staged for publicity? Well, it could be, it could be both, right? It could be two, two things at the same time. So cops play an extremely, extremely integral part in all of this. And so I started looking into the immigration of you know, because I've been talking about all the immigration and all that and the, and the Irish. So it's always nice to have more information to look, look closer, right? So in the 1840s, close to 2 million immigrants from Ireland, Ireland made their way to America. For many, the only work they could find was dangerous, low-paying service work with fire and police departments. The Irish gladly took these positions as it provided a means of income and acceptance into American society. Once they began having families, their children and their children would follow in their steps. In a lot of large cities like New York and Boston, you'll still find these departments dominated by Irish members even until the present day. 
What's the tradition? Well, the tradition, let me see here. It goes on reading from this piece here. Because of the rich Irish history in these service jobs, almost every police or fire department maintains aspects of Irish culture and tradition, including a bag, bagpipe marching band. Bagpipes are also an important part of Irish culture and and Irish funerals. So bagpipes are key to the Irish and also key to the police here. So police and firework in the 1800s was especially dangerous and it wasn't uncommon to lose several members of the force at one event. When these servicemen would have traditional Irish funerals, the sound of bagpipes quickly became associated in this country with a police or fire department member's funeral. That's why you'll still find bagpipes at almost any fire, police, or military funeral. In the early 1950s, the fire department of New York formed the first Emerald Society to help honor the Irish spirit and heritage of his members. Now you'll find an Emerald Society honoring American police officers or firefighters of Irish heritage in almost every major U.S. city. So Emerald Society is a group that they belong to, and it's the Irish, pretty tight group, right? And it's a group of all these people with Irish heritage. So this tradition has definitely, I would say, continued on to this day. Now, obviously, you know, in looking at the heads of these police departments, not all of them are going to yell out, hey, the guy's Irish, but I'll do a look later and show you, um, show you the leadership at the top of this organization in this country, the police. Uh, Many historians say that Irish were at the forefront of organized fire and police departments and that those services wouldn't be in existence today if not for the Irish. The Irish have a proud tradition in the military, police, and fire departments all across America. While they initially took these dangerous positions because they were the only work to be had, it quickly became a badge of honor to serve their new country. Since most departments do make an effort to honor this heritage, the bond between the Irish and police and fire departments is one Americans can always be proud of. Wow, now we're looking at it in a different, more suspicious light, aren't we kids? See, there's always a different angle, isn't there? Um, I have this idea of the Irish, and, and please, you know, oh, say what you want about me, okay? It's going to sound like a totally racist comment, but <laughs> the image that we get, we get from the movies and different events, right? And I've talked about this in the past in talking about the film noir movies. That is where they didn't have to have millions of troops on the streets to begin with. What they had to have was some clever movie making, right? showing us movies about how the cops interacted with people in real time. And that would be how we would have gotten our information about the cops. Except for, for example, my mother was born in 1926, so she would have gotten her ideas about how the cops interacted from movies, right? Because she was raised on a homestead in Montana, so really movies would have been how they started our early training and how cops, cops took care of things, right? Yeah, and 
I've always had this view that um, the cops were more of the enforcer types, but the fire, fire firemen were people that were more on our side. Yeah, so, so we got this, I, I believe it was from marketing, right? So this idea, and we also have this idea about the Irish um, drinking a lot of booze and being cops. So, yeah, this whole Irish thing is just very interesting. So, yeah, um, they went on to say here, um, so, yeah, cops, Irish, firemen, part of the whole heritage deal, right? And uh, the brotherhood, brotherhood of being a cop or a fireman. New York's longest-serving police commissioner, Raymond Kelly, is an Irish-American. So is the department's current commissioner, James O'Neill. Women do run the world, kids. They do run the world. They're just, you know... And also, when you get into these cultures of cops and firemen, remember, a lot of the ones who we're, we're seeing are actually women who are pumped up on testosterone. Um, and presenting themselves as men. So this, this to me makes the whole idea of cops and firemen even more interesting if you consider the fact that um, the ones at the top were clearly flipped as children, probably in vitro. They were, they were women in the womb and now they're showing us as men. So they're having to continue with this regimen of taking testosterone. So this is another interesting angle in this whole picture is you know, the ones at the top are really women hiding as men, and they're all taking testosterone. So, yeah, it also has some impact that would have to do with, oh, I don't know, personality and stuff. You know, what do they call it, roid rage um, from testosterone. And not to mention, you know, the uh, prevalence of diseases, like I've been talking about, you know, with Putin and Parkinson's and all these people getting these diseases. That's That's got to impact your mental capabilities. Um, so, yeah, so... Not to be ignored, um, and then you have a if, if these people do in fact drink a lot of alcohol, well, that's another pretty big factor into this thing, right? And how they're going to be thinking about this stuff. So, um, I went on to say that municipal police departments across the country celebrate the role of Irish American cops with Emerald Societies, and there's a historic reason for all of this. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I believe they still do today. I looked for numbers as far as how many cops in this country are ex-military. Well, well, surprise, surprise. Couldn't really find any numbers. So let's just assume that cops are pretty well regimented like the military. So um, what they went on to say was the flood of Irish into law enforcement in the second half of the 19th century was particularly striking because just a couple of decades earlier, city authorities had viewed Irish immigrants as the source of a serious crime problem. In fact, to a large extent, northern U.S. cities invented the, their police departments as a way to control the Irish problem. So they came up with um, police departments as a way to control the Irish problem. It's kind of interesting, yeah. In the mid-19th century, and particularly after the Great Famine that ravaged Ireland in the late 1840s, families fled to America with no money to buy land, ending up in growing shanty towns and slums of cities like New York, Philadelphia, and Boston. They took the jobs they could get. 
as unskilled laborers or domestic servants, making very little money. Like other struggling groups before them, some turn to petty theft or sex work to make ends meet. This is about the early Irish people fleeing the famine. Always about the cause and effect. Now, clearly, I wasn't there, but I would have to conclude that this famine was created by the psychopaths in charge, which always they always have ways of moving mass populations cheaply, right? This way they can get all these people to get up and pack and move on their own at a very cheap rate and sell them passage to the next country, right? So, yeah, there's always some sort of effect to get people moving. Um, you know, they don't need to put people into cattle cars to move them around. They just create environments where people will want to move, move and flee from terror. So, um... Then they went on to say it wasn't just crime that worried the authorities. Um, Anti-Catholic prejudice combined with cultural differences made the influx of Irish families seem particularly threatening. Irish immigrants of the era mainly came from the countryside, where a rougher way of life, including drinking and clashes between rival clans, was common. In the tightly packed urban neighborhoods of a country gripped by temperance fever, it excuse me, let's start over again. In the tightly packed urban neighborhoods of a country gripped by temperance fever, it created a powder keg. Yes, you know they came over to this country. They were forced into places. You know they probably thought they were going someplace else, right? And instead they ended up in some big city in some in, in the slums. Um, so their historians agree that there was very strong prejudice against the Irish. That translated into a lot of different things, like problems getting jobs. And remember when I was talking about um, how they came in through the port of New Orleans and became the um, displacer? So yeah, each, each group bring, they bring in to compete against the last group. So the Irish played a pretty big role in appearing like they were competing, but really this was all cooked up by them. And there was an early violent clash in 1837 in Boston when an Irish funeral possession blocked a volunteer firefighting company made up of American-born Protestants returning from a fire. This history blogger says, the riot that followed involved 15,000 people, about a fifth of the city's population, called Yankees. And the Yankees ransacked and virtually destroyed the city's Broad Street Irish neighborhood, though the only people convicted in the wake of the riots were Irish Americans. Yeah, this shows their patterns, right? They, they create riots, right? They said there was a riot involving 15,000 people, and they went and did all these things. So... This person said, I think it had a lot to do with it being a job back then that was open to people with low skills and physical strength at a time when few others were prepared to do it. The Irish were also staunchly Catholic, which lent itself to the position of enforcement of a moral code or law in this case. It turned out they made good cops by and large, and as the force matured and developed into a more professional body, the sons and grandsons would follow, 
into the brotherhood of officers it had become. Yes, yeah, so the interesting that the Irish also, you know, staunch Catholics, Catholics, uh, you know, Catholics, Italy. They wanted, somebody's theory was um, the Irish pursued a three-pronged approach to dominating their cities. Control the political machinery, control the law enforcement, and control the rackets. That would be control the rackets, meaning stuff that the mafia would be doing, right? Rackets. Um, normally what happens is when it's in a local jurisdiction, it's handled by the police. And once it goes across state lines, that's how the federal um, FBI can get involved in cases. So there's a lot that goes on in police departments that gets missed by people. So, um, yeah. And here's another good cause and effect, too, about the, the Irish and the cops. Um, so, controlling the rackets. Um, it was the control of bootlegging during Prohibition, the time when they supposedly, I, you know, there was probably some fighting between them as far as control over who was going to sell booze, right? Um, but the control of bootlegging during Prohibition led to the rise of the Irish in New York, Boston, and Chicago. And not actually make, and not actually making or enforcing the laws. In most Irish neighborhoods, you either become a priest, become a cop, or become a gangster. For the Italians, the choice was either gang priest or gangster. And also, it does seem that through this brotherhood, they created a whole flock of um, children that came out of this, and they transgendered those children, and those children who are now leading as cops are the ones who their parents made the deal to become the chosen ones. And then also, if you look at it this way, that cops became the out of families became the chosen ones, right? So it's an interesting dynamic that people who were, in all likelihood, not every single cop in the entire country, okay, but let's say the core group of Italian slash um, Irish cops, um, let's say that in the 50s, that group of people um, were the next generation, they had grandparents Let's just say my parents, and I'm, I'm not saying that any of this is true, I'm just using an example. I was born in the 1950s, okay? So let's say that generation of thankful Irish cops to really enact the brotherhood and the American way decided to, in mass, transgender their own children to meet what's going ahead with this new world order or this thing that they have going on with transgendering people, right? Well, that would, that would probably, you know, that that'd probably give a pretty good group of people that would be coming flipped at that one significant period. Um, so, yeah, and the brotherhood. So, in looking at, you know, patterns of who they would bring in that they would trust, it would make sense that it would be the cops. And it would make sense that a huge swath of them, let's say that the cops in the 50s had, um, 
Oh. They're always talking about large Irish families, okay? And I, I'm just thinking out loud here, okay? So let's say in this large Irish family, they have, I don't know, six, seven, eight children, right? Well, if there's some sort of brotherhood deal going on, it's not a stretch by any imagination to think that when those babies were born at these different hospitals, those babies were being already transgendered, likely in vitro. Um, or they were transgendered immediately upon birth. That's another possibility. So yeah, so there's two possibilities going on here. They were transgendered in vitro or they were transgendered upon birth. More than likely in vitro. So this would not be a complicated stretch because you've got an isolated group of people. You've got a group of Irish people. They're all a certain form of regiment, right? Militarization, the cops, the police. I mean, if you look at it, the cops are really just an extension of the military. So yeah, so you've got a pretty good group of people who you could then join the Brotherhood. Yeah, this is how they've been recruiting for their team. They're recruiting for the satanic side. And yeah, the, the, the very, well, there's nothing to be find funny or to rejoice in any of this because, uh, well, be glad that your parents didn't do this to you. Um, but these people also didn't ask for it to be done, right? I mean, this was decided upon because their parents were part of some sort of brotherhood who came to the conclusion that the next, you know, this, competing with the creator and making bodies was going to be their thing. And they themselves have also created a population of very sick people. So that's why it caught my attention with this Ashkenazi thing. And why are all of these, uh, why are the Irish coming up with Jewish diseases? Well, I think I just explained it, right? Because these people, these Irish people or Italian people, right? They have been impacted by the Ashkenazi Jews into joining their deal. That's how they got them to form this brotherhood. Take the oppressed, meaning the people that came over here starving from Ireland, and put them in charge being the oppressors. So yeah, it, it really is perfect in how... Um, because remember, there's not that many of them likely at the top. So they had to figure out ways to mobilize people to then keep the rest of us in check, right? And I don't believe that we needed to be kept in check from things like murder and robbery. That was their deal. And they needed their own kind to keep it, keep it all controlled. So I see the cops and the enforcement was as much to keep their own troops in line, if you know what I mean, because look at how many, how many of them are right now. All these people leading these companies who are just nothing but a bunch of crooks and stuff. So, yeah, I would say that the role of the cops and stuff also would be initially to keep their own kind in check because just just look at how much they're stealing right now. I mean, if, it for, if it weren't for some fake deals like with the Security and Exchange Commissions, you know, who is keeping these people in check? That's a whole clue, right? So, yeah, the cops enter in a very interesting way with the whole Irish thing. So, interesting how these things start to come out, right? They have the Irish buried in this deal, and now, through all this DNA stuff, we, we connect them directly 
to the Ashkenazi Jews. Imagine that. And all these diseases. Here comes the cops into the picture with that. So the only way the Irish could be in this picture with these Ashkenazi Jews is how I'm trying to outline it here. And if you have any other ideas, I'd be sure glad to take a listen to it. But I think this is the perfect setup of divide and conquer. Get all these people on their side and in the enforcement role. See how it works? So them against us, always about setting up the others in this deal. Interesting camouflage. Set them up as the firemen being our friends, local protectors, and on all of our cop cars here it says to protect and serve. Um, just think about it. We're in a dual world. Matter of fact, there was just a recent court case and the cops, um, this court case was brought up recently because supposedly, I don't know if it was true or not, the cops watched a man drown and three or four cops stood there while this man who couldn't swim drowned and said, too bad, we're not going to help you. Well, they brought up this court case and actually, you know, that part on their squad cars that says protect and serve, actually that's actually not true because technically part of being a cop does not mean that their role is to actually save that guy who was drowning. It is different based on each group. But, but in general, it's the opposite of, of what we've thought. So their rules are, it, it looks like their role is to protect and serve, but, but it's, it's in a dual world, so that's not even close to being the case and how this works. So, And that's how it basically got going. And that's how I say these Irish people are showing up with these Ashkenazi Jew diseases because if you're going to make an effort to take over the, the world and become like the creator and the competitor and stuff, first thing you want to do is get the police under control, right? Get the, get the enforcers on your side. Get them doing your bidding. Get, get them to be the ones who are oppressing the other people. I, I just find it interesting phenomena how people who are also, you know, of the middle caste system like most of us are, um, how they will take on a role to appease somebody else at a higher level, you know, to get ahead on the backs of the other people who really are more like them than like us. So it is just the dynamics how psychopaths en enlist their troops, right? So, yeah. And it also brings us around that 1800 time that they needed cops. So why, why around that time? Well, because that's the time that all of this was likely being created and they needed their enforcers there. So it seems pretty interesting that the cops became the people that they were fleeing from into their arms. See how a good psychopath does that. They create a situation where they got the people to be victimized by the Irish famine to hop on those boats to come over here. They got them to drop them off into cities and stuff where they were the outsiders. The Irish were considered the outsiders. Then waived these jobs of they could go around and be the cops and the firemen. See how it all worked out? And now these are the people who have become the oppressors themselves. The, the oppressed becomes the oppressor, I think is what I'm trying to say here. So I think you get the message here. And they're also heavily Catholic.
The history of the bagpipe is very long. Um, it's one of the oldest instruments there is. Um, the best uh, explanation of its origin is probably someplace in Egypt, maybe the Nile Valley. And in its simplest form, uh, the bagpipe is um, a reed taken from down by the edge of the river and um, probably some holes carved in it for the fingers and um, somebody blowing through it. This is a cane bagpipe reed. Uh, it's a double reed, which makes that really hideous sound when you blow through it, but um, added into a chanter with holes carved in it, um, you play the melody. Um, it's most likely thought that the Romans brought the instrument north to what is now Scotland um, about 2,000 years ago. Uh, uh, the British Army later picked the instrument up as um, something that they incorporated into bands to have um, the troops moved forward. Previous to that, it was just a folk instrument that people played um, for, for their own musical enjoyment. A little known fact is that there are probably about 70 different kinds of bagpipes in the world in addition to this great Highland bagpipe from Scotland. Um, there's Irish pipes, Spanish, French, German, Hungarian, Polish, Chinese, you name it. Just about every country in the world has their own indigenous bagpipe. Okay, let me throw you a curveball here. <laughs> you may be wondering, what was that clip about bagpipes about? Well, I don't have a single clue. But here's, here's why I'm thinking about bagpipes. Because um, the bagpipe is a common musical instrument played by Irish firemen and police as a very popular song. Um, there was a very famous Amazing Grace done with the bagpipes. So why, why bagpipes? No idea. Um, there's a lot to do that ties this to Scotland for some reason. Why Scotland? No idea. Scotland is tied to the United States through that Civil War flag supposedly was designed by the Masons, the Freemasons from Scotland. So using that design came from Scotland. Well, England and Scotland are both English-speaking countries, along with this country. Both countries are on the island of Great Britain. Neither Scotland nor England are independent countries and are under the control of the UK Parliament. So both England and Scotland come under the UK Parliament. And they're also, um, you know, next door to the city of London, right? So, um, so I took a look at the area there, and we'll start with the biggest area, the British Isles. This refers to England, Scotland, Wales, North Ireland, Ireland, and all the little islands nearby. The Isle of Man, for example, is not part of Great Britain or Ireland, Ireland or the United Kingdom, but is part of the British Isles. It's what's known as a crown dependency, meaning it's a self-governing possession of the crown. 
The Isle of Man is the small purple island in between the two larger islands. Then they also have the Bailiwick of Jersey and the Bailiwick of Guernsey. Guernsey is an interesting place. That's the place where they had all the, they said that they uncovered all those um, children's sex things with the church over in Guernsey. Yeah, supposedly there were a couple of cops on the island that exposed it all. Yeah, Guernsey is very interesting. A hotbed, also a, um, a tax haven. So, let me see. Bailiwick of Jersey. The Bailiwick of Guernsey are also frequently considered part of the British Isles as they are nearby crown dependencies, but they're actually closer to France than England. You can see them at the very bottom of the map. And here again, we'll have a map over there showing where these locations are. First thing I always want to do is I want to look and see what these people look like and where are they from. And it seems to be kind of an odd trait of mine because most people tend to kind of blast past this stage because what is connecting all these people? Well, I don't know. Bagpipes. Bagpipes and Confederate flag. Um, don't know. Got to be some reason, right? These these are the people of a million clues, but I do believe this clue happens to mean something. I just do not know why. Okay, the United Kingdom is a smaller subdivision within the British Isles excluding Ireland and the Crown Dependencies. Yeah, this is getting a little bit too complicated sounding. But anyway, so, yeah, um, we have Scotland, England, Wales, and North Ireland. And who do we keep coming up with? Well, we got all the Irish, we got all the Catholics, we got that, that group of people coming out of that same region, right? So, what does it mean? I don't know. The UK is a government division rather than a more general geographic geographic description. So, um, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. There's also something about this Brexit business that's suspicious in here. They likely did Brexit to wrangle some extra money or do something. Um, during the expansion of the British Empire, spearheaded by British military forces that included Highland regiments, that's the Highland, part of Scotland, we're looking at these Highland uh, bagpipes. The Scottish Great Highland bagpipes became well known worldwide. So because of these military forces, everybody got to know these bagpipes. This surge in popularity was boosted by large numbers of pipers trained for military service in World War I and World War II. This coincided with a decline in the popularity of many traditional forms of bagpipe throughout Europe, which began to be displaced by instruments from the classical tradition and later by gramophone and radio. As pipers were easily identifiable, combat losses were high, estimated at 1,000 in World War I. Yeah, they could pick out the pipers because they're playing those pipes, right? A frontline role was prohibited following high losses in the Second Battle of La Arena in 1943. So, yeah. These people are quick learners, right? They, they figured out that putting the people playing the bagpipes in the front caused them to get killed. In the United Kingdom and Commonwealth nations such as Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, 
These are also considered the New World countries, right, kids? Remember that part? So, yeah, these New World countries, the Great Highland Bagpipe is commonly used in the military and is often played during formal cere ceremonies. Foreign militaries patterned after the British Army have also adopted the Highland Bagpipe, including those of Uganda, Sudan, India, Pakistan, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, and the United States have also adopted the tradition of fielding pipe bands. So they're called pipe bands, kind of like pipe bombs, right? Um, in recent years, often driven by revivals of native folk dance and music, many types of bagpipes have enjoyed a resurgence in popularity. And in many cases, instruments that have fallen into obscurity have become extremely popular. In Brittany, the Great Highland Bagpipe and concept of the pipe band were appropriated to create a Breton interpretation known as the Bagad, B-A-G-A-D. The pipe band idiom has also been adopted and applied to the Gallic Galician. Bagpipes have often been used in various films depicting moments from Scottish and Irish history. The film Braveheart and the theatrical show Riverdance have served to make the Unilillian pipes more commonly known. Yeah, it's kind of hard to miss that bagpipe music, right? Bagpipes are often played at formal events at Commonwealth universities, particularly in Canada, because of Scottish influences on the sport of curling. Bagpipes are also the official instrument of the World Curling Federation and are commonly played during a ceremonial procession of teams before major curling championships. <laughs> Bet you didn't know there's so much about bagpipes, did you? Yeah, and bagpipes are what you would hear at any um, cop or fireman funerals. Huh. Um, the biggest bagpipe making was once a craft that produced instruments in many distinctive local and traditional styles. Today, the world's largest producer of the instrument is Pakistan, where the in industry was worth $6.8 million in 2010. In the late 20th century, gets us around those 1800 dates, right? Various models of electronic bagpipes were invented, or as I would say, they were doled out from previous technology, right? So yeah, um, some guy, astronaut, was thought to be the first person to play the bagpipes in outer space. They played Amazing Grace in tribute to late research scientists. Yeah, we know about that space lies, right? Okay, traditionally, one of the purposes of the bagpipe was to produce music for dancing. This, was de this has declined with the growth of dance bands, recordings, and the decline of traditional dance. In turn, this has led to many types of pipes developing a performance-led tradition, and indeed, much modern music based on the dance 
music tradition played on bagpipes is suitable for use as dance music. Yes, it does have a rather peppy tune, doesn't it? Um, many types of bagpipes today are widely spread across Europe and the Middle East, as well as to much of the former British Empire. The name bagpipe has become synonymous with the Great Highland Bagpipe. Okay, uh, let me see. The Irish piping tradition, that's what they call bagpipe players, pipers, which led to the mid-20th century, has declined to a handful of master players is today alive. Yeah, bagpipes are something else, aren't they? Yeah, I, I don't know what to answer about bagpipes. All I know is that I found it, I found myself wanting to know more about bagpipes, so now it is a big open question. Why the bagpipe music? Okay, let's talk about a couple things that are very popular with police and firemen. And that would be, one of them is a song called Amazing Grace. It's noted as the most famous song played at fire and police funerals. It wasn't long before families and friends of non-Irish firefighters began asking for the bagpipes to be played for fallen heroes. The bagpipes add a special air and dignity to this solemn occasion. Notice how they refer to them as fallen heroes, okay? Bagpipes are often heard playing at police, fire and police departments across the country and at memorial services. The tradition started more than 150 years ago when the Irish and Scottish immigrated here. One of the traditions they brought over was playing the Great Highland Bagpipe at weddings, funerals, and dances. However, the practice started well before the Irish and Scottish arrived in America. Okay, I've said some of this before, but just to keep in context. During the potato famine in the 1800s, Irish immigration increased greatly to the east coast of the United States Irish immigrants faced harsh discrimination and were rarely hired. Among the few jobs they could get were mostly dirty and dangerous ones. This led to many Irish and Scottish immigrants becoming firefighters and bringing their cultural traditions, including funeral bagpipes, to the job. At the time, firefighting was even more dangerous than it is today. Traditionally, Irish funerals featuring bagpipes 
traditionally, excuse me, traditionally Irish funerals feature bagpipes. So most, so do most firefighter funerals, and so do funerals of police officers. There is a brotherhood between police officers and firemen. So um, bagpipes are known as the sound of mourning. The sound of bagpipes playing can be haunting and mourning. Among the Irish in the 1800s, men rarely showed their sadness. However, at the sound of bagpipes, a firefighter may start to cry, allowing him to weep at the loss of a friend and comrade. Most often, Amazing Grace is the bagpipe song you'll hear played at memorial services. The four stanzas of Amazing Grace all have a specific meaning. The first pertains to being born. The second is played to celebrate you and your family. The third is about your life and with family. Okay, it's four stanzas. The first pertains to being born. The second is played to celebrate you and your family. The third is about your life with family, friends, and your fire department family. And the last is for your death. Wow, the third one is for your life with family, friends, and your fire department family. And the last is for your death, leaving the world alone. It wasn't long until the mournful sounds of a bagpipe were played for non-Irish firefighters. Many believe the sound of the bagpipes add a sorrowful yet dignified air to the funeral. So because they're standard at these funerals, um, the bagpipes are now bagpipe bands, actually. They have more than 60 uniform playing members. They're traditionally known as Emerald Societies. And I talked about that with the Irish. They're a group of, called Emerald Societies. The name comes from where the tradition started, Ireland, the Emerald Isle. Usually the band where the bands wear a traditional Scottish dress or a simpler Irish uniform. So yeah, they do wear um there will be some clips you can take a look at. There what's interesting is a traditional Scottish dress that you see these firefighters or police, they both do the same thing at these funerals and they're wearing traditional Scottish, they're wearing the kilts, they're wearing the, you know, all of that stuff. They're doing a lot of ritual motions with their hands and things. It seems to me that it is very ritualistic, if you ask me. So um, <clears throat> they say that now they're, they have become a distinguishing feature of memorial services for fallen heroes of any stripe. This song, Amazing Grace and These Bagpipes. What is up with that, right? Um, Amazing Grace is a Christian hymn published in 1779 with words written in 1772 by the English poet and Anglican clergyman John Newton. It is an immensely popular hymn. Yes, very popular. I looked for what people seem to think this hymn is about. If you ask me, I think it's an homage to Satan, who they're referring to as God, but that's where you have to think for yourself. It, they went on to say, <clears throat> it's an immensely popular hymn, particularly in the United States. 
Amazing Grace is a hymn of gratitude to God for simply being there always for us. The powerful lyrics remind us that because of Jesus, none of us are ever lost because God is always with us. So yeah, supposedly this guy, John Newton, wrote this song in Alney, England, and um, in the attic of his house, kind of like, who was that other girl that wrote in her attic? Uh, <laughs> yeah, just like all the tech people starting garages, I guess, famous songwriters write in attics. Um, um, yeah, what is interesting is um, there's four different types of funerals for firefighters and cops. The first is the formal, which is full military-style honors and traditions. The second is semi-formal, with some traditions and honors. The third, non-formal, and the fourth is private. When firefighters pass away, their family isn't alone. The majority of fire departments have people to help plan the funeral if the family would like assistance with making funeral arrangements for the funeral with, with making arrangements for the funeral. Um, so yeah, what they do is they have uh, cops are always there. <clears throat> and what happens is um, the firefighter funeral possession is assisted by the local police department. The police will help with the arrangements or an ideal traffic route for the procession. They will also lead the funeral procession as well as provide assistance with traffic control. During the funeral service, the firefighter's helmet will be placed on top of the casket or upon the altar. Also, a lot of these people are primarily Catholic. Um, honor guard, fellow police officers or firefighters will stand guard at the funeral entrance. These members called the honor guard are, are picked from fellow firefighters or officers. Their dress is formal and they are also the pallbearers that carry the firefighter's casket. The firefighter's casket is covered with a flag from their firehouse that they served in. The color guard will fold the flag at the end of the ceremony and then pass it on to the next of kin or next of kin to take in the remembrance. Toning of the bell, that happens during the firefighter's funeral ceremony. This tradition is based on the telegraph pattern of communication. In the old days, the telegrapher communicated the term fell, F-E-L-L, with the five dashes and a pause that this would be repeated two more times today the bell ceremony sounds like the old firehouse bells that rang if there was a fire lots of symbols isn't it lots of symbols lots of rituals along with this kind of stuff firefighter funeral will have several fire rigs attending the ceremony the fire rig of the deceased will lead the procession to the cemetery Bagpipes. The playing of bagpipes are possibly most recognizable of all the firefighters' funeral traditions. Yeah, just go over to YouTube and just do a search for, oh, I don't know, bagpipes and funerals, and you will see all of them. Okay, um, firefighter 
Firefighter funerals, and remember I'm talking also cops, they kind of intermingle here, right, it seems. Firefighter funerals and bagpipe music have a long history together. Firefighters and police officers have had bagpipes played at memorial services since the 19th century. This history began when Irish immigrants started arriving in the 1800s. Okay, um, it started with the Irish, and um, there's two things that they talk about at funerals. One is called, um, two songs, one is called Amazing Grace, and the other is The Minstrel Boy. And I will post both of these songs over at the website because they're worth taking a look at. Um, Amazing Grace we're all familiar with, so let me read a passage here from The Minstrel Boy. This has to have some significance to these people. The Minstrel Boy. The minstrel boy to the war is gone. In the ranks of death you'll find him. His father's sword he has girded on, and his wild harp slung behind him. Land of song, said the warrior bard, though all the world be crazy. One sword at least thy rights shall guard. One faithful harp shall praise thee. The minstrel fell, but the foreman's chain could not bring that proud soul under. The harp he loved ne'er spoke again, for he tore its cords asunder. And he said, No chain shall sully thee, thou soul of love and bravery. The so thy songs were made for the pure and free. They shall never sound in slavery. Yeah, I don't know about this stuff. Um, they also have a firefighter's prayer. Give me concern. Give me courage. Give me strength. Give me wisdom to lead. Um, yeah, because they're big into fires. The fireman's prayer. When I'm called to duty, God, wherever flames may rage, give me strength to save some life, whatever be its age. Help me embrace a little child before it is too late or save an older person from the horror of that fate. Enable me to be alert to the weakest shout and quickly and efficiently to put the fire out. I want to fill by calling to give the best in me, to guard my every neighbor and protect his property. And if according to my fate, I am to lose my life, please bless, please bless with your protecting hand my family and my wife. Well, they seem to be pretty intertwined to me, this fireman, um, the cops, the firemen, all this um, ritual Scottish stuff, bagpipes. I don't really quite know what to think about it all, but that's what we're here to do is think and chat. Okay, let's take a little closer look at who are the people that are the inhabitants of Israel and why are they there? Could be a, could be a bunch of different reasons, okay? Um, these people could have cooked all this up and joined the troops, you know, 
about the time of the Ottoman um, Empire, mid 1900s. Um, so let's let's take a look at some evidence here. In Israel, the term Ashkenazi is now used in a manner unrelated to its original meaning, often applied to all Jews who settled in Europe, and sometimes including those whose ethnic background is actually Sephardic. Jews of any non-Ashkenazi background, including Maraza, Yemenite, Kurdish, and others who have no connection with the Iberian Peninsula have similarly come to be lumped together as Sephardic, Sephardic, S-A-P-H-A-R-D-I-C, Sephardic. Yeah, I'll get it straight eventually. <laughs> Maybe in the next few years I'll get a few of these words down. Okay, so um, this is interesting because what it appears to me is that if you make a big melting pot, you cannot stand out in the crowd, right? So now they're saying that there's not much of a difference between them. Jews of mixed background are increasingly common, partially because of intermarriage between Ashkenazi and non-Ashkenazi, and partly because many do not see such historic markers as relevant to their life experience as Jews. And this makes it very interesting because I, I, they said including the Yemenite. Who are the Yemenites? Well, had to look it up. Interesting thing. You know, they're over there bombing the daylights out of Yemen. Um, and um, why, why the people from Yemen? I have it here. Um, yeah, I think this is maybe why. Um, Okay, yeah, here is this phrase that had it more coherently than me bubbling past it. Let me see here. Um, so what they're talking about is um, they have these different parts of this religion thing, and I don't want to get too confused, because I'm kind of confused myself about it, but they basically say that they have the Ashkenazi, the Mizrahi, M-I-Z-R-A-H-I Jews, and the Sephardic Jews. Those are the Jews out of Spain, remember? The Yemenite and the Ethiopian and other Jewish communities which historically lived in isolation. So I thought, well, who are the Yemenite Jews, right? Well, interestingly enough, Yemenite Jews or Yemeni Jews um, are those Jews who live or once lived in Yemen. Between 1949 and September 1950, the overwhelming majority of Yemen's Jewish population emigrated to Israel in Operation Magic Carpet. Well, I looked up Operation Magic Carpet. Just look up Operation Magic Carpet and put Wiki, W-I-K-I, behind it. I think Operation Magic Carpet was to move soldiers back home and things like that after the war. But here they're saying that they used Operation Magic Carpet, interesting choice of terms, to move the Yemeni Jewish population out of Yemen and into Israel. And this would have been in 1950, 1949 to September 1950. They moved that majority of the population out of Yemen into Israel. Kind of like they're populated Israel, right? Okay. 
The vast majority of Yemenite Jews now live in Israel, while smaller communities live in the United States and elsewhere. Only a handful remain in Yemen. The few remaining Jews experience intense and at times violent anti-Semitism on a daily basis. Yemenite Jews have a unique religious tradition that distinguishes them from Ashkenazi Jews, Sephardi Jews, and other Jewish groups. They have been described as the most Jewish of all Jews and the ones who have preserved the Hebrew language the best. Yemenite Jews fall within the Mizrahi, M-I-Z-R-A-H-I, which is the Eastern category of Jews. Though they differ from other Mizraha Jews who have undergone a process of total or partial assimilation to Sephardic liturgy and custom, while the shabby subgroup of Yemenite Jews did adopt a Sephardic-influenced Reich, this was mostly due to it being forced upon them and did not reflect a demographic or general culture shift among the vast majority of Yemenite Jews. Pretty interesting stuff. So, yeah, and what they've been doing is... Um, They've been just changing the roles around, right? The roles were more defined and more strictly followed and all that. So they've just been modifying the roles. Well, why is that? Well, I don't know, to make them more like them, right? I believe they kind of interloped onto this whole deal. Religious Ashkenazi Jews living in Israel are obliged to follow the authority of the chief Ashkenazi rabbi on Halukit matters. In this respect, a religiously Ashkenazi Jew is an Israeli who is more likely to support certain religious interests in Israel, including certain political parties. These political parties result from the fact that a portion of the Israeli electorate votes for Jewish religious parties. Although the electoral map changes from one election to another, there are generally several small parties associated with the interests of religious Ashkenazi Jews. The role of religious parties, including small religious parties that play important roles as coalition members, results in turn from Israel's cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan as a complex society in which competing social, economic, and religious interests stod for election so, yeah, I think that they have this thing called the, the election to the Kisnet, K-N-E-S-S-E-T. So, yeah, and they have 120 seats in it. So, yeah, they Ashkenazi Jews have played a prominent role in the economy, media, and politics of Israel since its founding. During the first decades of Israel as a state, strong cultural conflict occurred between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews mainly East European Ashkenazis. The roots of this conflict, which still exists to a much smaller extent in present-day Israeli society, are chiefly attributed to the concept of the melting pot. That is to say, all Jewish immigrants who arrive in Israel were strongly encouraged to melt down their own particular exilic identities within the general social pot, in order to become Israeli. Boy, they thought of every angle, haven't they? Um, yeah, I think that um, 
they appear more and more like interlopers to me, but that's why we all have brains and ways to think about these things, right? Yeah, I believe there were a few different groups of Jews, and I believe that the Yemenite Jews have a very strong thing here. There's also this thing going on that the Jews were responsible for killing Jesus. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know if Jesus is even real. But anyways, and they say that Jesus was black. So interesting pile of things entering here now that we have Yemen in the picture. So... Yeah, I, I was very involved with a group from Yemen when I had my Twitter account, and the Yemen and the Gaza people and the um, Bernie Sanders people, and I realized that it was all controlled opposition. <laughs> but anyway, long story short, yeah, I realized that the Yemen people who were on Twitter were there acting like they were pro-Yemen, but they were really selling out their own people was what, what it was. Um, so yeah, it's pretty complicated there, but there has to be this reason why did Obama start bombing the daylights out of Yemen? What's going on in Yemen that they seem to want to crush out of existence? Beautiful country. They used to show pictures of what the country looked like pre-bombing. Beautiful, beautiful, majestic place. You know, one of the oldest civilizations on the planet. So something is there about Yemen. Um... In a religious sense, an Ashkenazi Jew is any Jew whose family tradition and ritual follow Ashkenazi practice. Until the Ashkenazi community first began to develop in the middle, in the middle, early Middle Ages, the centers of Jewish religious authority were in the Islamic world at Baghdad, Baghdad, and in Islamic Spain. Ashkenaz, which is called Germany was so distant geographically that it developed a new bog of its own, meaning a little gathering of its own. Ashkenazi Hebrew came to be pronounced in ways distinct from other forms of Hebrew. In this respect, the counterpart of Ashkenazi is Sephardic. We keep hearing about the Sephardic Jews out of Spain, right? Since most non-Ashkenazi Orthodox Jews follow Sephardic, Sephardic rabbinical authorities, whether or not they are ethnically Sephardic, by tradition, a Sephardic or Mizrahi woman who marries into an Orthodox or Haredi Ashkenazi Jewish family raises her children to be Ashkenazi Jews. Conversely, an Ashkenazi woman who marries a Sephardi or Mizrahi man is expected to take on Sephardic practice and the children inherit a Sephardic identity. Though it's practice, though in practice many families compromise. A convert generally follows the practice of Beth Din that converted him or her. With the integration of Jews from around the world in Israel, North America, and other places, the religious definition of an... Okay, they're saying that well, they're saying that this is kind of a load of garbage to a degree because of all this deal about whether they're Sephardic or Ashkenazi. Now they're saying that the Ashkenazis are about 80% of them. So I think the Sephardic ones have been kind of pushed off to the side. Um, and they also, there's parts of this thing that talk about, because they kind of busted themselves with those DNA kits because now they're finding that the majority of these Ashkenazi Jews actually originate out of Europe. So their story about originating in, the, in Israel kind of falls to pieces. 
But they have found that 10% of the male DNA coming out of that region traces to that. But, you know, they, they basically probably just picked up a culture and a religion. That's, that's who they're hiding amongst, right? Um, there's just way too many things that connect them to each other. So, um, yeah, and then, then they changed the thing about um, that Jewishness is transmitted from the mother. So if your mother is Jewish, that means you're Jewish. Yeah, it's easy to change things around to meet your current condition, right? So they seem like they have been... Um, if you remember uh, a few years ago, all the celebrities were into all that Kabbalah business, okay? This is the Kabbal where the Kabbalah business comes in. Um, new developments in Judaism often transcend differences in religious practices between Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews. In North American cities, social trends such as Shavura movement and the emergence of post-denominal Judaism often bring together younger Jews of diverse ethnic backgrounds. In recent years, there has been increased interest in Kabbalah, which many Ashkenazi Jews study outside of the yeshiva framework. Another trend is the new popularity of ecstatic worship in the Jewish renewal movement. Yeah, this Kabbalah thing is part of the Ashkenazi Jews. So you see all these people, these celebrities, they're, they're wearing those little red bracelets, red spring bracelets. That's, that came from the Ashkenazi Jews. So now we know a lot more about the Jews, and I would have to say that it sounds like they interloped and invented themselves along the way here and have a vested interest in claiming Israel as their own. Why? A million questions. Hopefully I'll get back to it soon because when the British turned Israel, when they formed Israel, I'll just give a real nutshell. When they formed Israel, they started talking in the early 1900s as far as, oh, the Jews, the Jews are being oppressed, the Jews are being oppressed, let's take them to Israel. And that plot line was going along during the League of Nations, which was pre-United Nations. So they were setting the seat. This is my personal view, okay? They were setting the seed that the Jews are being trampled on in Europe and we got to do something. We got to move them back to their homeland. Well, why does Israel become their homeland? Big question, right? And remember, if you think back about these Malta people, they got their start from being the hospital group, setting up the people going to the pilgrimages in Jerusalem. So, yeah, but it appears like this group um, then used World War II as an entree into a more formal agreement with Israel under the Balf Balfour Declaration, okay? But, like all of their treaties, they were rotten from the beginning, right? So, the people, when they made the Balfour Declaration, people thought that things were getting sorted around. Well, they weren't getting sorted around. It was like the deal with the Indians in this country, right? I think probably what happened was the Palestinians said, sure, bring over some of these poor, displaced, poor Jewish people. We'll get a piece of land. And pretty soon they were gobbling up all the land. And now, I mean, it just takes a little common sense. Who is behind chain link fences? Well, it would be the Palestinians, right? <laughs> Who has been the one getting screwed in this deal? Well, I would say it's the Palestinians. So where do these Israeli people even come from? Well, they were planted there, okay? They did not really come from there. So, you know, 
Why did they use this Operation Magic Carpet to bring some Yemenite Jews into Israel, to bring them into the fold so they could all act like they belong together? A lot of mysteries here, right? But I think at the bottom of it is one fat big lie, okay? These people have been hiding in plain sight. I have said that for years, but I never really knew why I said it. Yeah, they have been hiding in plain sight as Jewish people. Yeah, but I, I'm not even sure they're really Jews to start with, is, is what I'm trying to say right here. So this is why we're here to discuss and have a chat, to use our own brains and think about what does this really mean? Do you trust these Ashkenazi Jews? I think the Ashkenazis at the top are likely the black nobilities, but hopefully with some time I will get back to that soon. But yeah, so seems pretty clear to me the Ashkenazi group is the same thing as a Zionist group, the same people who run this country. I don't know. The evidence is stacking up that these are the evil psychopaths in charge. At least that's how it is appearing to me. So, But that's why everybody has their own brains, their own thoughts. Go look for yourself. Go look up some of these things. Try to understand what these Jewish meanings do. Do you believe that there's more Sephardic Jews now? Or there's more, you know, Ashkenazi Jews? It, the numbers have been all over the map. I think the majority now are Ashkenazi Jews. But remember, they write the history, so the facts are always a little bit shaky at times. So, Anyhow, this is what we're here to think about, right? Why Israel? Why those Yemenite Jews? Who killed Jesus? never asked me to do that, you kinky freak. <laughs> Not a healthy person. <laughs> I love food so much. I'm Italian, so Italian food is my favorite. And I'll tell you how good Italian food is. Italian food is so good, it makes you forget all the terrible stuff Italy has done in history. <laughs> For instance, when Italy was known as ancient Rome, they killed Jesus. And then I bring that up, it gets very uncomfortable. <laughs> Don't worry about Jesus dying, by the way. I hear it didn't take. It's the word on the street. <laughs> he slept it off or something. He's fine. <laughs> then later, this other Italian guy named Mussolini teamed up with Hitler, and they started World War II. Hitler, by the way, did not like Jews because there had been a little mix-em-up about the who killed Jesus thing. And the whole time the Italians were like, play the cool. <laughs> Don't tell them it was us. <laughs> It'll be very mad. <laughs> but you forget about all that because that's how good Italian food is. You can kill the son of God and be with Hitler, but still when anyone brings up Italy, you're like, man, I could go for some raviolis right now. <laughs> In the meantime, whenever you bring up Germany, I always think, ah, those Nazis, but they came up with the hamburger and the hot dog which are good, but not good enough to make you forget all their Nazi stuff. <laughs> but after World War II, the world was like, Italy, how could you do that? And Italy went, we made lasagna. <laughs> and like, you're forgiven. <laughs> you're forgiven forever, Italy. <laughs> which makes me think, if Hitler had written a cookbook called Mein Comfort Foods, <laughs> maybe we'd think differently about them. <laughs> 
of another historical joke. Last one. I found out that they've discovered 118 pyramids in Egypt. And I was wondering how there got to be so many. And I figured some guy must have gone up to his friend and was like, okay, if you build two pyramids and those two people build two pyramids <laughs> and those two people build two pyramids. So I was like, I don't know, dude. Seems like a scheme to me, but whatever you say, Pharaoh Ponzi. <laughs> There's a place I long to be where the air is wild and free. It's a little haven just for me. I can let my hair down and be me. Just a smile for a start. And it only takes a spark to begin the fire in your heart. Wouldn't you agree? Hello, listener. This is Hachi. I hope you are enjoying the show. We would like you to consider supporting us so as to keep giving you interesting contents. Take a time out to check out the support page on the website and please consider making a kind donation. We would appreciate any little support. Thank you. Okay, let me give you a little bit of a recap as far as the Israeli-Palestinian efforts back and forth. Either the Palestinians are the world's worst negotiators and are intent on living behind um, caged environments, um, you need to realize that when the um, Israel, when they were developing Israel, it was at the cost of the Palestinians. That these are my views, okay? And um, it seems kind of interesting that. And I believe this 100% to be a fact, that as they brought in more people to populate Israel, interestingly enough, right, their homeland, whatever that's all about, black Jesus, whoever was there. Um, yeah, as they were populating Israel over time, as they were making land grabs from the Palestinians, they literally, and I mean literally, would clear Palestinians out of their homes, meaning they would just come in and they would be ordered out of their homes, everything left in the home, to be moved beyond a area that is now fenced in, right? So you have to ask yourself, well, who's in charge and who isn't, right? Well, to be the kind of person that would relocate to your homeland or whatever you want to call it, being Israel, it just seems a little off-center to me that part of that deal would mean that somebody would literally be rejected from their home so you could go and have their home. I mean, there's just a certain amount of uh, arrogance and psychopathy that enters this picture here that's a little bit hard to describe. But let me give you an idea of the timeline here, okay? So this goes back to 1919, okay? The Arabs of Palestine refused to nominate representatives to the Paris Peace Conference. 1920, San Remo Conference decisions rejected by the Arabs of Palestine. 1922, League of Nations decisions. League of Nations was pre-United Nations, okay? 1922, League of Nations decisions rejected by the Arabs of Palestine. 1937, Peel Commission partition proposal rejected by the Arabs of Palestine. 1938, Woodhead partition proposal rejected by the Arabs of Palestine. 
1938. They started this in 1919. We're coming up on 100 years here, right? Not that long ago. 1939, the white paper rejected by the Higher Arab Committee for Palestine. 1946, Anglo-American Commission proposal rejected by the Arabs of Palestine. I should have a little hammer I could go. Rejected. <laughs> I could whack the um, microphone, but I won't go there. Okay, 1947, UN General Assembly partition proposal rejected by the Arab League and the Higher Arab Committee for Palestine. 1949, Israel's outstretched hand for peace called UNGAR, U-N-G-A-R 194, rejected by the Arab League and the Higher Arab Committee for Palestine. 1967, Israel's outstretched hand for peace it's UNSCR 242, rejected by the Arab League and the PLO, which the PLO is the Palestine Liberation Organization that was run by Yasser Arafat, who I believe sold them out during this deal, right? He was the one that was playing both ends of the deal, selling, selling his own people out. Should be a special place in hell for people like that, but I'll continue on here. So, uh, 1978, Begin Sadat peace proposal rejected except for Egypt by the rest of the Arab world, including the PLO. 1994, Rabin Hussein peace agreement rejected by the rest of the Arab League except for Egypt and Jordan. 1995, Rabin's co-contour for peace rejected by the Palestinian Authority. 2000, Barack Clinton peace offer rejected by Yasser Arafat, who then in initiated the pre-planned second intifada. 2001, this would be Barack, Barack Obama, Barack's offer at Taba rejected by the Palestinian Authority. Is that what ticked him off to go and want to bomb the daylights out of Yemen? 2005, Sharon's, there was a guy named Sharon over there, Sharon's peace gesture, withdrawal from Gaza, rejected by the Hamas takeover in 2007. 2008, Omer Bush peace offer, rejected by Mohammed Abbas. 2009 to present, Netanyahu's repeated invitations to peace talks, rejected. 2014, Kerry's contour for peace rejected by the Palestinian Authority. 2018, Trump's deal of the century rejected in advance by Mohammed Abbas. 2019, U.S. Conference on Economic Benefit for the Palestinians rejected by the Palestinian Authority. 2020, PA, which would mean Palestinian Authority, reiterates rejection of Trump's deal of the century before it is even presented. 2020, the Palestinians reject the peace deal with the UAE that allegedly stopped Israeli sovereignty being applied to areas within Judea and Samaria. Why that means Judea and Samaria something about that piece of land must be in their bug too, right? 
So yeah, Arafat. I think Arafat sold him out in a big way. He died of some sort of heart blood disorder, which comes from these, um, you know, playing with hormones. Stay off hormones, kids. It's a deadly business to try to trick people with. Okay, who is Yasser Arafat? For those of you too young to not know or don't really care, you'll always see him wearing a turban. Good move, right? Hide that balding head. See, I would have been on that side if I was part of this acting thing because putting on that turban in the morning would really cut down a lot of things, right? You wouldn't have to worry about pasting on your little um, wig. <laughs> Just throw a turban on. So, who was he? Well, he was a Palestinian political leader. He was chairman of the Palestinian, Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, from 1969 to 2004, and president of the Palestinian National Authority, also known as the PNA, from 1994 to 2004. Ideologically an Arab nationalist, he was a founding member of, or she, how are you going to look up, the Fatah political party, which he led from 1959 until 2004. Arafat was born to Palestinian parents in Cairo, Egypt, where he spent most of his youth and studied at the University of King Foud. While a student, he embraced Arab nationalism and anti-Zionist ideas. Oh, so now they're saying in school he learned to hate the Jews, right? Okay, I see this here. This logic is making sense now. Opposed to the 1948 creation of the State of Israel, Yasser Arafat fought alongside the Muslim Brotherhood during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Following the defeat of Arab forces, Arafat returned to Cairo and served as president of the General Union of Palestinian Students from 1952 to 1956. So, uh, yeah... And there was this little quote here I couldn't pass up. It said, at the heart of every pro-Palestinian is either an anti-Semite or a Jew looking to integrate himself with anti-Semites. The reason for this is that the entire myth of Palestinian nationhood was invented in order to displace the Jewish people from their ancestral homeland by creating an alternative nation that supposedly has national rights in the same land. The fact is that there was never a country called Palestine. The name was given to the territory to the territory of the land of Israel by the Romans in order to erase any connection to the any connection of the land to the Jews. Okay, let me recap this here. They're saying um, the fact that there was never a country called Palestine. The name was given to the territory of the land of Israel by the Romans in order to erase any connection of the land to the Jews. You know, possibly some Jews really did live there, and that's what this whole stink is about, right? These other Jews, are they're acting like they're the real Jews. Kind of like a double trick, right? Um, the term, I'm continuing to read from this um, angry Israelites person justifying the deal with Israel. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to look at who, who's living behind cage fences, right? The term Palestine refers to the territory which currently contains many countries, including Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. The Arabs who were living in the land of Israel and now call themselves Palestinians 
are no different from the Arabs living in any of the surrounding countries. They have 23 of them. They speak the same language, have the same, let's see here, have the same culture and religion, and even the same family names and genealogy. There is no separate nation of Palestinians, and the Arabs who were supposedly displaced from their land were actually foreign squatters who moved the land when the Jews began returning there, together with Jewish money, in order to take advantage of the improved economy. So this theory, it, all theories are still on the table, okay? This, this early on in the research, you don't start tossing out things because they sound too wild or too crazy, right? <laughs> the crazier they sound, the more real they might be. There, there, there's a possibility. These Palestinians, maybe, maybe they are squatters, right? And uh, these people are claiming that they're just no good squatters who are there to take advantage of the Jewish people returning home with their Jewish money. And they went on to say here, Israelis are not anti-Arab. We wish them all the best in any of their countries, and even in ours, provided they live here as Arabs, not as a nation that has rights to the land of Israel. And that is what this is all about. What is going on in Israel? Why would the Palestinians talk to them about it? Were the Palestinians even supposed to be there? The mystery unfolds. Okay, let's talk a little bit about where the people from the Bible, what they had to say about all this. Where do Jewish, where do Jewish people come from? Good question, right? This is a question that anthropologists, historians, and theologists have studied for the millennia. According to mythology, not known as facts, but fiction, the Ju Judeans descended from three patriarchs. Adam, Isaac, and Jacob, who are buried in the cave of the patriarchs, cave of Machapeta in Hebron, a Palestinian city and World Heritage Site located in the southern West Bank, 19 miles south of Jerusalem. So, according to mythology, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay, Buried alongside them are said to be Adam and Eve and the four matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah. Huh, that's only three. And the four matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah. Well, I only count three, but the cave has never been excavated. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I guess we got to take their word that they're hiding in this cave, right? But on top of it is a relatively modern building, mid-first century, which Herod the Great built, likely to honor his ancestors. That's Herod, H-E-R-O-D, the Great. If you study the Bible, this will make a lot more sense. For a more scientific take on the Jewish origin debate, recent DNA analysis, analysis of the Ashkenazi Jews, a Jewish ethnic group, revealed that their maternal line is European. Yeah, they were making money on those DNA kits until they came back to start to bite them, right? 
It has also been found that their DNA only has 3% ancient ancestry, which links them with Eastern Mediterranean, also known as the Middle East, namely Israel. So they have 3% according to them, right? So, namely Israel, Lebanon, parts of Syria, and Western Jordan. This is the part of the world Jewish people are said to have originally come from, according to the Old Testament. But 3% is a minuscule amount, and similar to what modern Europeans as a whole share with Neanderthals. That whole Neanderthal business is just a pack of lies, isn't it? Um, one of the liars on YouTube was talking about some study from Neanderthals from 40,000 years ago. And these people were actually saying this with a straight face. <laughs> they said something about that there was this, uh, they use these, learn to look for the kind of terms they use. The, the terms will tell you it's all BS, right? They said that um, two Neanderthals mated with something four, 400,000 years ago and they came up um, with a lower ability to fight off COVID. I mean, these people make up some just crazy town lies, right? But hey, it works, right? No accounting for ignorance. Okay, so, so what they're saying is um, the genetic ancestry link is very low. Yes, it is very low. And that would give them another good reason to want to pile in as many J Jewish people as they can identify into Israel, right? You always want to, you know, develop a gang to do your activities. Why do it on your own if you're a psychopath, right? Build up the ground troops. To understand why this is the case, we need to go back in time to look at where these ancestors came from. It starts in Persia, modern-day Iran, during the 6th century. This is where most of the world's Jews were living at this time. Remember, I'm reading from one of their analyst or historian's reports here. But, you know, behind a big lie is some truth, right? So that's what you have to always keep your eyes on. Where is the truth in this deal? Okay, so, um, so they say most of the world's Jews were living in modern-day Iran. Well, that kind of makes sense because now Iran is completely closed off. Iran was the reason that I figured out that it was all controlled opposition on Twitter because um, Iran is into Yemen, and I got very suspicious. I can tell that story later, but um, what I found out about Iran, which made me very suspicious of them, a few years ago was the fact that if you're gay and live in Iran, you can get uh, killed by the government or the government will pay to have transgender surgery. So yeah, it sounded a little, a little westernized to me. And Iran is a big destination for transgender surgeries. And also, you know, look at how surrounded Iran is by the U.S. military, okay? This is not hard stuff to figure out. No one's ever heard of unmarked planes. <laughs> so, yeah, so... Iran got me suspicious because of their deep ties and commitment to doing transgender surgeries. It didn't seem very fitting with what they were trying to sell as their country. So anyway, so yeah, um, the tolerance of the Persians encouraged the Jews to adopt Persian names. This is, makes sense to me because it seems weird that these so-called radical Persians and stuff, putting everybody on burqas and stuff, would be actually ones who would be um, encouraging mutilating transgender surgeries, right? So, um, they encourage the Jews to adopt Persian names, words, traditions, and religious practices, and to climb up the social ladder, gain a monopoly on trade. 
They also converted other people who, who were living along the Black Sea to their Jewish faith. This also helped to expand their global network. Among these converts were Alans, A-L-A-N-S, is the Iranian nomadic pastoral people, Greeks, and the Slavs, who resided along the southern shores of the Black Sea. Upon conversion, they translated the Old Testament into Greek, built synagogues, and continued expanding the Jewish trade network. These Jews adopted the name Ashkenaz, and the DNA of Ashkenaz Jews can be traced to ancient Ashkenaz, an intersection of trade routes in eastern Turkey. But there's one other thing in here that also ties them to that group over in the Khazars. Now remember, a lot of this stuff may just be fictional. There is this theory called the, the Rise of Ashina, A-S-H-I-N-A. And I'm reading from their quote. It says, We now know that at the time these, these Jews adopted the name Ashkenaz, they also acquired unique Asian mutations on their Y chromosome. This is where another important group of people in our story come into play. They are called the Gok Turks, G-O-K Turks. During the 6th century, these nomadic people were ruled by a Siberian Turkic tribe called the Ashina. They were forced by the Chinese Tang Empire, who were in power in China at the time, to migrate westward toward the Black Sea. Thanks to their organizational and military skills, the Ashina united many tribes in this area, and the new empire called the Khazar Kagagnate was born. Offering freedom of worship and taxing trade, these people quickly rose to power. That would be the Ashinas. Somebody did a sheet on the Ashinas, but it didn't, didn't say anything. It had like four, four pages to it. Um, because they're speculating. They're saying the Asian group... And remember, that part of Asia over there, between India and Asia, has 80% of the world's population in it. The Asian group of these DNA mutations found in Ashkenaz Jews likely originated from the Ashina elite and other Khazar clans who converted from shamanism to Judaism. This means that the Ashina and core Khazar clans were absorbed by the Ashkenazi Jews. Now that's certainly one other outlook, right? The Ashina clan included also the dragon clan. And they use that dragon logo all over the place. You know, the dragon on the whales and England. Everybody's using that dragon thing. The Ashina clan included also the dragon clan. And eventually became known as the dragon she-wolf tribe. The mythology of this unusual combo ancestry was based on that of a dragon who shape-shifted into a gray she-wolf. The first Jewish chieftain of Khazaria was a 7th century warrior known as Bulan. So, I don't know. I don't know. It, it has... Um, so, there was this question that was asked, was Ashkenaz a Khazar? 
1932, Samuel Krause ventured the theory that the biblical Ashkenaz referred to Northern Asia Minor and identified it with the Khazars, a position immediately disputed by Jacob Mann. So, yeah, I don't know. It was also around this time that the Jewish elite adopted many Slavic customs. They would, I would say that Yiddish was developed as a secret language to assist in trade. Yeah, why do these Ashkenazi Jews speak Yiddish? Yiddish, the Jewish language, right? Okay, then they said the next chapter. What happened next was the Jewish empire began to collapse. By the 10th century, the Jews on the Black Sea migrated to Ukraine and Italy. Yiddish became the lingua franca of these Ashkenazic Jews and absorbed German words while maintaining the Slavic grammar. As, and as global trade moved to the hands of the Italians, Dutch, and English, the Jews were pushed aside. Or is it that the Jews were secretly running it all, right? What all this shows is by using modern genetic technology that enables scientists to track the past of modern day people, a new appreciation for Jewish ancestry could be discovered. Yeah, there's, they always have to spin it that um, the Jews were the um, trotted down ones, the biggest victim in the world. It has meant a greater understanding of the journeys these people took to arrive in Europe. If they ever arrive in Europe, see the words here. Did they arrive in Europe or were they already in Europe is a big question here, right? It has already allowed for increased knowledge as to the significant role the Ashina and the Khazar clans from which some of the real Jewish patriarchs actually came from played. So the rabbinical term Ashkenazi refers to dysphoria Jews who established communities along the Rhine and Western Germany and Northern France during the Middle Ages. Upon their arrival, they adapted traditions carried over from the Holy Land, Babylonia, and the Western Mediterranean to their new European environment. The Ashkenazi religious rite developed in cities such as Mons, Worms, Troyes, can't pronounce any of them, but anyway, so um, in the Middle Ages, due to widespread persecution, here again, always in trouble, right? The majority of the Ashkenazi population steadily shifted eastward, moving out of the Holy Roman Empire into the areas that later became part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So these areas now would be Belarus, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Moldova, Poland, Russia, Slovakia, and Ukraine. Over the course of the late 18th and 19th centuries, those Jews who remained in or returned to historic German lands generated a cultural reorientation under the influence of the Haskalah, H-A-S-K-A-L-A-H, and the struggle for emancipation. Yeah, they're always trying to get free, aren't they? Emancipation as the intellectual and cultural ferment in urban centers. They gradually abandoned the use of Yiddish and adopted German 
while developing new forms of Jewish religious life and cultural identity. Well, they could be either blending in with the local population or developing a completely new identity. Depends on how you look at it, right? It is estimated that in the 11th century, Ashkenazim comprised 3% of the global Jewish population. While an estimate made in 1930 near the population's peak listed them as nearly 92% of the world's Jewish population. However, the Ashkenazi population was disseminated shortly after a result of the Holocaust that was carried out by the Nazi Germany. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, immediately prior to the Holocaust, the worldwide Jewish population stood at approximately 16.7 million people of Ashkenazi Jews reigning from 10 million to 11.2 million. The chosen ones aren't that many, are they? So, um, yeah, there's all these other calculations, which I don't think really mean much to us right here. Um, genetic studies on Ashkenazi Jews. That's where the cat got let out of the bag, kids. Before you start doing some research, understand that the results could bury you, right? <laughs> okay. Researching both their paternal and maternal lineages indicate that they are of mixed Levantine and European, mainly Western European and Southern European ancestry. And I would bet you anything, and here is a little biblical thing that I'll tell you. And I'll read this because for some of you it will make sense. So, uh, But I do not understand these words, so I'll do my best. Okay, the name Ashkenazi derives from the biblical figure of Ashkenaz, the first son of Gomer, son of Japlet, J-A-P-E-T, son of Noah, and Japet, and a Japet patriarch of the tribe of nations, Genesis 10. The name of Gomer has also been linked to the Atonic Sumerians, C-I-M-M-E-R-I-A-N-S. Biblical Ashkenaz is usually derived from Ashurian, a people who were, who were expelled from Chimerians from the Armenian area of the Upper Euphrates, E-U-P-H-R-A-T-E-S. The name Ashu, A-S-K-U-Z-A, is usually associated with the name of the Scythians. The intrusion the intrusive N in the biblical name is likely due to a scribal error confusing a wave one with a num I don't know what that means. In Jeremiah 51, 27, Ashkenaz figures as one of three kingdoms in the far north, and others being Mini and Arat. So there were three kingdoms. Ashkenaz was one of them. The others were Mini and Arat. Perhaps corresponding to Arat, Gal called on by God to resist Babylon. In the Yuma Tactical of the Babylonian... I, I, I can't read this because it won't. Uh, they say this name, Gomer, is rendered as Germania, which elsewhere is rabbinical literature in Syria. Later, I, I don't know. Ashkenazi is linked. Cream of Germanic tribes. Yeah, this stuff. a lot of this stuff is just kind of early guesswork, but... Um, Eastern and Central Europe, in modern times, 
this person named Samuel Krauss, K-R-A-U-S-S, identified the biblical Ashkenaz with Khazaria. Sometime in the East Medieval period, the Jews of Central and Eastern Europe came to be called by this term. Conforming to the custom of designated areas of Jewish settlements with biblical names, so they said the custom of designating areas of Jewish settlements with biblical names. So why were they naming Jewish settlements after biblical names? <laughs> Who knows, right? Spain was denominated Sepharad, S-A-F-A-R-A-D. France was called to Sepharad, T-S-A-R-E-F-A-T. And Bohemia was called the Land of Canaan. By the high medieval period, Talmud commentators like Rashid began to use Ashkenaz to designate Germany, earlier known as Lothar, L-O-T-E-R, where especially in the Rhineland, communities as spires, worms, and mains, the mostly important Jewish communities. So they were speaking Yiddish back then, this group was, um, and that's what they speak also the people over in Israel. Okay, given the close links between the Jewish communities of France and Germany follow the Carolonian unification, the term Ashkenazi came to refer to the Jews of both medieval Germany and France. So both parties is where these people came from. But we can wipe out a lot of this stuff because they've been busted coming from Europe. Um... This is something that Bible people may understand, and I'll try my best to read some of it. The Roman Empire decisively crushed two large-scale Jewish rebellions in Judea, the First Jewish-Roman War, which lasted from 66 to 73 CE. Yeah, I don't know about all these. The holy city of Jerusalem and Herod's temple were destroyed in the First Revolt. Jerusalem was totally razed. Um totally forbidding Jews and Jewish Christians from entering. Yeah, I don't understand what any of this stuff means um, or if it even makes any sense. Um, but they're saying that was a fight that went on there, but the people were really from Europe, right? So um, outside of their or origins in ancient Israel, which we get their origins from these people, right? We don't have anything tying them really to ancient Israel except for their word. Um, it's, this says, the history of Ashkenazim is shrouded in mystery. Well, yeah, of course it is. The many theories have arisen speculating on their emergence as a distinct community of Jews. Yeah, that's my suspicion, too, that they are, in fact, a distinct community of Jews cooked up. <laughs> the historic record attests to Jewish communities in Southern Europe since pre-Christian lines. Many Jews were denied full Roman citizenship until Emperor Karakata granted all free people this privilege in 212. Jews were required to pay poll tax until the reign of Emperor Julian in 363. Yeah, I don't know. They were pretty big into the uh, Roman area. But see, all these roads lead right back to Italy, right? Um, so, yeah, you'd have to go if you're interested. and Go and take a look for yourself. They have them going through all these different regions. But then a lot of this gets wiped out by the discoveries the last few years or with their DNA really meaning that they're coming from Europe, right? So 
Um, okay. Okay. In parts of Eastern Europe, before the arrival of the Ashkenazi Jews from Central, some non-Ashkenazi Jews were present who spoke who spoke Lashan Kanan, K-N-A-N, and held various other non-Ashkenazi traditions and customs. And some historian in 1966 questioned the inclusion of all Yiddish-speaking Jews as Ashkenazi descent, suggesting that upon the arrival of Ashkenazi Jews from Central Europe to Eastern Europe from the Middle Ages to the 16th century, there were a substantial number of non-Ashkenazi Jews already there who later abandoned their original East European Jewish culture in favor of the Ashkenazi one. I don't know. It just sounds like, you know, there likely were some Jews. It looked like these, these Ashkenazi people converted them. And that's why they now have 90% of the population. However, according to more recent research, mass migration of Yiddish-speaking Ashkenazi Jews occurred to Eastern Europe from Central Europe in the West, who due to high birth rates absorbed and largely replaced the preceding non-Ashkenazi. Yeah, everybody's preceding everybody, right? So, um, genetic evidence also indicates that Yiddish-speaking Eastern European Jews largely descend from Ashkenazi Jews who migrated from Central any more ways can I say that, right? They, um, some Jewish early immigration from Southern Europe to Eastern Europe continued in the early modern period during the 16th century as conditions for Italian Jews worship worsened. Many Jews from Venice and the surrounding areas migrated to Poland and Lithuania. During the 16th and 17th centuries, some Safari Jews and Romanite Jews from throughout the Ottoman Empire migrated to Eastern Europe, as did Arabic-speaking Mizraiah Jews and Persian Jews. Well, it sounds to me, um, if I were to pick a homeland for these Jews, I would pick either, hmm, I would pick Germany and Italy. Place I would pick because they got language coming from there. We got them hanging around those countries. They they come up with their name based on places within those countries, and I keep ending up back in Germany. So, um, and this stuff could get really crazy as far as the different tribes and how this tribe spoke to that tribe. And um, okay, and by 1930. This guy named Arthur Rupin estimated that Ashkenazi Jews accounted for nearly 92% of world, world, world Jewry. These factors are sheer demography showing the migration patterns of Jews from Southern and Western Europe to Central and Eastern Europe. In 1740, a family from Lithuania became the first Ashkenazi Jews to settle in the Jewish quarter of Ju Jerusalem. Yeah, these dates really tie them back into this. Um, in the context of the European Enlightenment, Jewish emancipation began in the 18th century France and spread throughout Western and Central Europe. 
disabilities that had limited the rights of Jews since the Middle Ages were abolished, including the requirement to wear distinctive clothing, pay special taxes, and live in ghettos isolated from non-Jewish communities. So yeah, I guess prior to that, they were forced to wear certain kind of clothing and stuff, but well, I don't know. I guess we have to take their word for it, right? Um, I was about the, as a reaction to increasing anti-Semitism and assimilation, Followed the emancipation, Zionism was developed in Central Europe. So Zionism came from Central Europe. Other Jews, particularly those in the Pale of Settlement, turned to socialism. These tendencies would be united in labor Zionism, the founding ideology of the State of Israel. Of the estimated 8.8 million Jews living in Europe at the beginning of World War II, the majority of whom were Ashkenazi, about 6 million, more than two-thirds were systematically murdered in the Holocaust. So, um, were they? I, I don't know. It would be, be very hard to... Um, I, I wouldn't even try to guess at this point. Um... As a large majority of the victims were Ashkenazi Jews, their percentage dropped from an estimate of 92% of world Jewry in 1930 to nearly 80% of world Jewry today. Hmm. The Holocaust also effectively put an end to the dynamic development of the Yiddish language in the previous decades as the vast majority of the Jewish victims of the Holocaust, Holocaust around 5 million, were Yiddish speakers. Many of the surviving Ashkenazi Jews immigrated to countries such as Israel, Canada, Argentina, Australia, and the United States. Following the Holocaust, some sources place Ashkenazim today as making up approximately 83 to 85% of Jews worldwide. Um, and they argue saying it could be 70, who cares, it's a lot of them, right? Um, and they control the figures. Um, culturally, an Ashkenazi Jew can be identified by the concept of Yiddish Gigibi, which means Jewishness in the Yiddish language, is specifically the Jewishness of Ashkenazi Jews. By this meant the study of the Torah and Talmud for men and family and communal life governed by the observance of Jewish law for men and women. From the Rhineland to Rigia to Romania, most Jews prayed in Lutherical Ashkenazi Hebrew. See, they, they're, they're all speaking the same language, right? The Ashkenazi Hebrew, the Yiddish, and they spoke Yiddish in their secular lives. But with modernization, this Yiddish Kinchkin now encompasses not just orthodoxy, but a broad range of movements. It seems like it's been just one big melting pot, if you ask me. Um... Ashkenazi Jews moved away from Europe, mostly in the form of Aliva to Israel, or immigration to North America, and other English-speaking areas such as South Africa and Europe, particularly France and Latin America. So I think there's a lot tying them to each other with this Yiddish business, this Hebrew business. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think their DNA pretty much clears up who they really are. So this is something that, um, you know, why do they have these customs? Why are they melting pot? Um, this one last piece here, it says, um, 
You can also go look up on Wiki, just look up simple terms like list of Ashkenazi Jews. Ashkenazi Jews have a notable history of achievement in Western societies. Oh boy, don't they ever, right? In the fields of nature and social scientists, mathematics, literature, finance, politics, media, and others. Sounds kind of like the crew run this place, doesn't it? In those societies where they have been free to enter any profession, they have a record of high occupational achievement entering professions and fields of commerce where higher education is required. Yeah. Ashkenazi Jews have won a large number of the Nobel Peace Prizes. <laughs> Times Magazine Purse of the 20th Century, Albert Einstein was an Ashkenazi Jew, according to a study by Cambridge University. 21% of Ivy League students, 25% of Turing, Turing Award winners, 23% of the wealthiest Americans, 38% of the Oscar-winning film directors, and 29% of Oslo awardees are Ashkenazi Jews. Now, that's, that's the ones who admit they're Jews, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have to say that uh, they're, they're kind of running things no matter how they got here, right? Um, I've already talked enough about their genetic stuff here. Um, yeah. Um, they, um, you know, Albert Einstein's their guy. Yeah, everybody is. Everybody's on that list. And these lists, like I said, are incredibly easy to find. And you can even look for a list of suspected Jewish people. Um, <laughs> These days, they don't really call themselves Ashkenazi Jews. They, they seem to call themselves, um, you know, Zionists or Israelis. Or There are people of a million things. So if you start to wonder, are these people tricky? Yeah, I would say they're pretty tricky, just based on how they've been hiding their own background. Does this stuff go back thousands of years? I don't really know. But what I do know is that somehow, somehow, around the 1900s, this whole trick got going. And that I will hang my hat on because that's how I think it really got going. So, and it appears to me that the people in charge are the ones who are also running the universities. Remember, universities are profit centers. Okay, they get all these endowments. They're ta they're tax they're tax shielded. Um, yeah. So naturally, their people are the ones running things, right? Because um, they give their people the certificates and degrees. So in order to become a lawyer or something, you have to go through their schools. You have to, you know, they obviously would know if you're one of them or not. You know, you have to get a license for most things in this country. So those licenses can pretty well control um, who, who gets what at the top, right? And you can bet your bottom dollar that they're going to protect everything they can at the top. That's why they always present these crazy backstories about these rags to riches because they want the rest of us who truly believe that one of those positions might be for one of us. Well, I would venture to say that if you even want one of those positions, I would question your thinking, okay, because nothing good is going to come out of this clamoring for money here in this deal. So yeah, just think for yourself. Does any of this look good for you? I think money was their biggest trick they cooked up and it seems to have worked exceedingly well. Even after I was talking about crypto money, you know, crypto Jews, couple shows ago, the crypto world is still still raking in billions of dollars. People just don't get the basics here, okay? I think there's a lot of tricking going on, and it is so obvious to me, but it doesn't seem to be obvious to a whole lot of other people. So I appreciate you following my ramblings along here. I think that this is who we're looking at. It certainly seems to me like 
that's who we're looking at. But that's why we all have to think about these things for ourselves. Thank you for joining me today. I'd like to close with clarifying a couple of things that I talked about when I was talking about the golden age of fraternalism, that period of society when men were joining together in these different fraternities. So most examples, because I had talked about the Templars, I said the good Templars, and I thought that they were part of the um, Templars from the Malta group. And it turns out they are, but let me explain how. Because in Washington, D.C., for example, you can look at the George Washington Masonic National Memorial. It's an example of one of the monumental buildings sponsored by the Freemasons during the Golden Age of Fraternalism. Also looks suspiciously like a penis. <laughs> Okay, the earliest fraternal societies, the Freemasons and the Odd Fellows. Now keep in mind on the Freemasons that not everybody is the top level Freemasons, but most cops and people like that are at some level Freemasons. They were especially influential and counted such prestigious members as Ben Franklin and George Washington during the Revolutionary Era. Um, there was this thing called the Morgan um, Affair. It was just some sort of thing that created panic among secret societies, but had lar largely recovered by the 1850s, albeit slowly. The Independent Order of Good Templars, which is part of the temperance movement, was unique in that from the beginning, it admitted both men and women, as well as both African-Americans and European-Americans, the Order of Good Templars. The first order was promoting teetotalism, is the independent order of Rechabites, which was founded in 1835 and also part of the temperance movement. What is interesting is, you know, they obviously are the ones who introduced alcohol into the picture, right? Also known as spirits. I would be very cautious of being around people who are drinking alcohol as the time comes near here. Anyhow, so um, let me see. After the American Civil War, the Grand Army of the Republic was formed taking its membership from Union veterans seeking to continue the camaraderie of military service. Other fraternal organizations arose as well, such as the Independent Order of Good Templars, 1851, Knights of Pythias, 1864, the Patrons of Husbandry, it was also called the Grange, 1867, Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks, 1868, the Knights of Columbus, 1882, the Loyal Order of Moose, 1888, the Woodsmen of the World, 1890. These organizations served various goals, mutual aid, and insurance. 
political interests, or social functions, but they each offered their memberships the comfort of stability and belonging in a dynamic and rapidly industrializing society. They also were less exclusive than the older fraternities like the Masons and the Odd Fellows. So all those Elks and all those people came along after the Masons and the Odd Fellows. In response, these fraternities also enlarged and offered even more elaborate ritual. They're all about the rituals. More elaborate ritual and costuming. They wear all those costumes. Look at those people with those um, bagpipes dancing around those kilts. <laughs> By 1900, the Oddfellows were the largest fraternity in the United States, with almost a million members followed closely by the Freemasons. The effects of fraternalism on the development of government and society were profound. Although with the exception of the Grand Army of the Republic, they were racially segregated, they nonetheless brought together a broad range of classes under each fraternal banner. They provided a very important insurance function for the average workman and they brought organization to various political ends. The Freemasons drew many of its members from their professional and merchant classes and did not have an explicit insurance program, leaving them financially better off than most other orders. I don't know what this insurance program is about. Their origin and ritual, as their name suggests, likely derives from medieval builders. As a result, during the golden age of fraternalism, they built many impressive buildings and monuments that survive in most U.S. cities. The last major fraternity to be organized during this era was also its most controversial, the refounding of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915. Its principles were largely political as it supported an anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic, white nationalist, and anti-immigrant platform. Its decline was as spectacular as its rise. The overt banality of its leaders and their scandals caused widespread revulsion. The Great Depression of the 1930s hurt all the fraternal orders and the Klan went moribund. I guess that meant bust. Well, none of these things really went away. They just changed faces, right? Just like the government welfare programs that formed during the Progressive and New Deal eras, as well as the rise of available commercial insurance, lessened the need for the mutual aid fraternities. I guess these fraternities were so they could have insurance. Insurance, real estate, it's all just part of the old money scam, right? Some, such as the modern woodsmen of the world and the independent order of foresters, became insurance companies themselves. That's interesting that insurance companies were founded by these original people rounding up the men into these groups, right? Yeah, that's why you see at these Elks meetings, and I went to Toastmasters, to learn public speaking, um, they're always having insurance agents crawling around these meetings, right? Trying to sell you life insurance, death insurance. They have, they have an insurance policy for everything. The Freemasons, as the oldest and most storied of the ritualistic fraternities, continue to grow as a result of an influx of members after World War II. 
reaching their zenith in terms of absolute numbers in 1959. And remember, too, in the past, I have been talking about my generation called baby boomers, okay? What do you think about when you think about all those Irish cops and Irish firemen during that generation booming out babies, right? Baby boomers. Huge part of the population likely got flipped at that point. Well, at least the population that we're looking at as far as being in charge. It never reaches percentage of the population um, during the golden age. It continues to decline. So in 2014, the Masonic Service Association of North America reported only 1.2 million members. Yeah, well, they not lie about the numbers, so who knows. But what I found interesting about the deal with the cops and stuff and listening to this amazing grace business was this. And I try not to overinterpret songs because I'd like for you to think about it for yourself. But what struck me is all this bagpipe business and wearing the kilts and all that stuff. What struck me on one of them, they have all these Bible quotes. And um, it appears that the firemen and the cops are also considered chosen ones, just like the Jews are, right? Because they always come up with these slogans you know, if you if you look up on YouTube, just go look for fire department, you know, bagpipes. You'll find at every time a cop gets killed or a fireman gets killed, they have these big elaborate ceremonies. Very ceremonial, okay? So, and they have different Bible quotes they flash up and things like, For many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew twenty two fourteen. So I get the feeling how they sold this fireman and police deal was to be grateful for the country that took you in, you poor Irishman, and to show your gratitude, see how this could possibly work. Anyways, so let me talk a little bit about Amazing Grace. They're always singing Amazing Grace with those bagpipes, okay? Amazing Grace has gone on to become one of the most powerful songs in the world and favorite hymn for many. The song offers up a universal message of hope and redemption. Everybody who listens finds a different meaning for themselves. But John Newton, who is the writer, uh, is said to have written it as a heartfelt expression to God. Well, I can't help but think it's a heartfelt expression to Satan. But this is why we all have eyes and ears, right? Amazing Grace is a Christian hymn published in 1779 with words written in 1772 by the English poet and Anglican clergyman John Newton. It is an immensely popular hymn, particularly in the United States, where it is used for both religious and secular purposes. Newton wrote the words from personal experience. He grew up without any particular religious conviction, but his life's path was formed by a variety of twists and coincidences that often put into motion by others' reactions to what they took as his recalcitrant insubordination. Hmm. He was pressed into service in the Royal Navy. After leaving the service, he became involved in the Atlantic slave trade. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, 
he was involved in the slave trade, and then he had a change of heart and did this other thing, right? And then he wrote Amazing Grace because, yeah, interesting that he was in the slave trade. And in 1748, this is their, their story. I'm just reading it. In 1748, a violent storm battered his vessel off the coast of County Donegal, Ireland, so severely that he called out to God for mercy. This moment marked his spiritual conversion, but he continued slave trading until 1754 or 1755 when he ended his seafaring altogether. Newton began studying Christian theology and later became an abolitionist. Ordained in the Church of England in 1764, Newton became curate of Alney, Buckinshire, where he began to write hymns with poet William Cowper. Amazing Grace was written to illustrate a sermon on New Year's Day of 1773. It is unknown if there was any music accompanying the verses. It may have been chanted by the congregation. It debuted in print in 1779 in Newton. They had this book called All Knees Hymns but settled into relative obscurity. In the United States, Amazing Grace, my middle name is Grace, by the way. I don't know where I come up with these odd details. I, I don't know where I come up with some of this stuff. I don't have any clue how this week I was all engaged with bagpipes, but I'm just going with it. So, Amazing Grace became a popular song used by Baptists and Methodist preachers as part of their evangelizing, especially in the South, during the second great awakening of the early 19th century. Amazing Grace has been associated with more than 20 melodies. And you know, you'll have to thank me later now that you won't be able to get Amazing Grace out of your head. <laughs> I wake up humming Amazing Grace, like what's going on here? Um, when you start playing the bagpipes in your head, you know you've gone too far. Um, okay, so there's this, there's two, version. In 1835, American composer William Walker, also WW or 33, right, <laughs> set it to the tune known as New Britain. Um, and the New Britain is the one that we hear most now, but I don't know that I could tell the difference, but okay. There is a message with amazing grace about forgiveness and redemption. And the message is that they are possible regardless of sins committed and that the soul can be delivered from despair through the mercy of God. Amazing Grace is one of the most recognizable songs in the English-speaking world. Author Gilbert Chase writes that it is, without a doubt, the most famous of all the folk hymns. This Newton biographer estimates that the song is performed at about 10 million, um, let me scroll down here, 10 million times annually. It has had particular influence in folk music and has become an emblematic black spiritual song. Its universal message has been a significant factor in its crossover into secular music. Amazing Grace became newly popular during a revival of folk music in the United States during the 1960s. 
and it has been recorded thousands of times during and since the 20th century. So what is the deal with Amazing Grace? What is the deal with bagpipes? I honestly do not have a clue, uh, but it brings up a lot of interesting questions. If you're doing your research right, you're going to end up with more questions than you end up with answers at times, right? So I think we're at a pretty big question point here. And I'm hoping to get back to this golden age business because that becomes very interesting how they then became manipulators of our minds to go along with all this stuff. And the song you're going to hear has multiple meanings. I don't want to tell you too many of them, but it's a song by the police and uh, every breath you take. <laughs> it sounded like the ultimate stalker song when I listened to it recently because you know, I was raised on this music. So yeah, it sounds like the ultimate stalker song, but maybe it's a song that the actual police have written and they're talking about us like I can see you now. Anyways, enjoy the song. I hope you got a lot out of the show. Check out the website, psychopathinyourlife.com. You can find all the links you want to look out over there. And I will chat with you soon. Be safe out there. Goodbye for now.
listener. My name is Achi. I'm from Nigeria. I am the producer of the show. We would like to take this time out to thank you for your continued listenership and support towards the show. However, this past couple of months, it's been increasingly difficult to produce the show. We would like to solicit for your support so as to keep the show running. Please consider any kind donation you can make, big or small. We would appreciate anything that you offer. The donation link can be found on the website. Thank you. Oh, oh, oh.